When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, June 2006. Rilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 9. Doc Has a Misadventure. The war will not be over before next spring now, said Dr. Blythe, when it became apparent that the long battle of the Aisne had resulted in a stalemate. Rilla was murmuring, knit four, pearl one under her breath, and rocking the baby's cradle with one foot. Morgan disapproved of cradles for babies, but Susan did not, and it was worth while to take some slight sacrifice of principle to keep Susan in good humour. She laid down her knitting for a moment and said, "'Oh, how can we bear it so long?' then picked up her sock and went on. The Rilla of two months before would have rushed off to Rainbow Valley and cried. Miss Oliver sighed, and Mrs. Blythe clasped her hands for a moment. Then Susan said briskly, "'Well, we must just gird up our loins and pitch in. Business as usual is England's motto, they tell me, Mrs. Doctor, dear, and I have taken it for mine, not thinking I could easily find a better. I shall make the same kind of pudding to-day I always make on Saturday. It is a good deal of trouble to make, and that is well, for it will employ my thoughts. I will remember that Kitchener is at the helm, and Joffre is doing very well for a Frenchman. I shall get that box of cake off to little Jem, and finish that pair of socks to-day likewise. A sock a day is my allowance.' Old Mrs. Albert Mead of Harbour Head manages a pair and a half a day, but she has nothing to do but knit. You know, Mrs. Dr. Dear, she has been bedrid for years, and has been worrying terrible because she was no good to anybody in a dreadful expense, and yet could not die and be out of the way, and now they tell me she is quite chirked up and resigned to living because there is something she can do, and she knits for the soldiers from daylight to dark. Even Cousin Sophia has taken to knitting, Mrs. Dr. Dear, and it is a good thing, for she cannot think of quite so many doleful speeches to make when her hands are busy with her needles instead of being folded on her stomach. She thinks we will all be Germans this time next year, but I tell her it will take more than a year to make a German out of me. Do you know that Rick McAllister is enlisted, Mrs. Dr. Dear? And they say Joe Milgrave would, too, only he is afraid that if he does that Whiskers on the Moon will not let him have Miranda. Whiskers says that he will believe the stories of German atrocities when he sees them, and that it is a good thing that Rang's Cathedral has been destroyed because it was a Roman Catholic church. Now, I am not a Roman Catholic, Mrs. Dr. Dear, being born and bred a good Presbyterian, and meaning to live and die one, but I maintain that the Catholics have as good a right to their churches as we have to ours, and that the Huns had no kind of business to destroy them. Just think, Mrs. Dr. Dear, concluded Susan pathetically, how we would feel if a German shell knocked down the spire of our church here in the Glen, and I am sure it is every bit as bad to think of Rhine's Cathedral being hammered to pieces. And meanwhile, everywhere, the lads of the world, rich and poor, low and high, white and brown, were following the piper's call. Even Billy Andrew's boy is going, and Jane's only son, and Diana's little Jack, said Mrs. Blythe. 
Priscilla's son has gone from Japan, and Stella's from Vancouver, and both the Reverend Joe's boys. Philippa writes that her boys went right away, not being afflicted with her indecision. Jem says that he thinks they will be leaving very soon now, and that he will not be able to get leave to come so far before they go, as they will have to start at a few hours' notice, said the doctor, passing the letter to his wife. That is not fair, said Susan indignantly. Has Sir Sam Hughes no regard for our feelings? The idea of whisking that blessed boy away to Europe without letting us even have a last glimpse of him! If I were you, Dr. dear, I would write to the papers about it. Perhaps it is as well, said the disappointed mother. I don't believe I could bear another parting from him. Now that I know the war will not be over as soon as we hoped when he left first. Oh, if only—but no, I won't say it. Like Susan and Rilla, concluded Mrs. Blythe, achieving a laugh, I am determined to be a heroine. You're all good stuff, said the doctor. I'm proud of my womenfolk. Even Rilla here, my lily of the field, is running a Red Cross society full blast and saving a little life for Canada. That's a good piece of work. Rilla, daughter of Anne, what are you going to call your war baby? I'm waiting to hear from Jim Anderson, said Rilla. He may want to name his own child. But as the autumn weeks went by, no word came from Jim Anderson, who had never been heard from since he sailed from Halifax, and to whom the fate of wife and child seemed a matter of indifference. Eventually Rilla decided to call the baby James, and Susan opined that Kitchener should be added there too. So James Kitchener Anderson became the possessor of a name somewhat more imposing than himself. The Ingleside family promptly shortened it to Jim's, but Susan obstinately called him Little Kitchener and nothing else. "'Jim's is no name for a Christian child, Mrs. Dr. dear,' she said disapprovingly. "'Cousin Sophia says it is too flippant, and for once I consider she utters sense, though I would not please her by openly agreeing with her. As for the child, he is beginning to look something like a baby, and I must admit that Rilla is wonderful with him, though I would not pamper pride by saying so to her face. Mrs. Dr. dear, I shall never, no, never forget the first sight I had of that infant lying in that big soup tureen, rolled up in dirty flannel. It is not often that Susan Baker is flabbergasted, but flabbergasted I was then, and that you may tie to. For one awful moment I thought my mind had given way, and that I was seeing visions. Then thinks I know I never heard of any one having a vision of a soup tureen, so it must be real at least. And I plucked up confidence. When I heard the doctor tell Rilla that she must take care of the baby, I thought he was joking, for I did not believe for a minute she would or could do it. But you see what has happened, and it is making a woman of her. When we have to do a thing, Mrs. Dr. dear, we can do it. Susan added another proof to this concluding dictum of hers one day in October. The doctor and his wife were away. Rilla was presiding over Jim's afternoon siesta upstairs, purling four and knitting one with ceaseless vim. Susan was seated on the back veranda, shelling beans, and Cousin Sophia was helping her. Peace and tranquillity brooded over the glen. The sky was fleeced over with silvery, shining clouds. Rainbow Valley lay in a soft autumnal haze of fairy purple. The maple grove was a burning bush of colour, and the hedge of sweetbriar around the kitchen yard was a thing of wonder in its subtle tintings. It did not seem that strife could be in the world, and Susan's faithful heart was lulled into a brief forgetfulness, although she had lain awake most of the preceding night thinking of little Jem far out on the Atlantic, where the great fleet was carrying Canada's first army across the ocean. Even Cousin Sophia looked less melancholy than usual, and admitted that there was not much fault to be found in the day, although there was no doubt it was a weather-breeder, and there would be an awful storm on its heels. "'Things is too calm to last,' she said. As if in confirmation of her assertion, a most unearthly din suddenly arose behind them. It was quite impossible to describe the confused medley of bangs and rattles and muffled shrieks and yowls that proceeded from the kitchen, accompanied by occasional crashes. Susan and Cousin Sophia stared at each other in dismay. "'What upon earth is Brock loose in there?' gasped Cousin Sophia. "'It 
"'Must be that Hyde cat gone clean mad at last,' muttered Susan. "'I have always expected it.' Rilla came flying out of the side door of the living-room. "'What has happened?' she demanded. "'It is beyond me to say, but that possessed beast of yours is evidently at the bottom of it,' said Susan. "'Do not go near him, at least. I will open the door and peep in. There goes some more of the crockery. I have always said that the devil was in him, and that I will tie to.' "'It is my opinion that the cat has hydrophobia,' said Cousin Sophia solemnly. "'I once heard of a cat that went mad and bit three people, and they all died a most terrible death, and turned black as ink.' Undismayed by this, Susan opened the door and looked in. The floor was littered with fragments of broken dishes, for it seemed that the fatal tragedy had taken place on the long dresser where Susan's array of cooking-bowls had been marshalled in shining state. Around the kitchen tore a frantic cat, with his head wedged tightly in an old salmon-can. Blindly he careered about with shrieks and profanity commingled, now banging the can madly against anything he encountered, now trying vainly to wrench it off with his paws. The sight was so funny that Rilla doubled up with laughter. Susan looked at her reproachfully. "'I see nothing to laugh at. That beast has broken your ma's big blue mixing bowl that she brought from Green Gables when she was married. That is no small calamity, in my opinion. But the thing to consider now is how to get that can off Hyde's head. Don't you dast go touching it!' exclaimed Cousin Sophia, galvanized into animation. "'It might be your death. Shut the kitchen up and send for Albert.' "'I am not in the habit of sending for Albert during family difficulties,' said Susan loftily. "'That beast is in torment, and whatever my opinion of him may be, I cannot endure to see him suffering pain. You keep away, Rilla, for little Kitchener's sake, and I will see what I can do.' Susan stalked undauntedly into the kitchen, seized an old storm-coat of the doctor's, and after a wild pursuit and several fruitless dashes and pounces, managed to throw it over the cat and can. Then she proceeded to saw the can loose with a can-opener, while Rilla held the squirming animal rolled in the coat. Anything like Doc's shrieks while the process was going on was never heard at Ingleside. Susan was in mortal dread that the Albert Crawfords would hear it and conclude she was torturing the creature to death. Doc was a wrathful and indignant cat when he was freed. Evidently he thought the whole thing was a put-up job to bring him low. He gave Susan a baleful glance by way of gratitude, and rushed out of the kitchen to take sanctuary in the jungle of the sweet briar hedge, where he sulked for the rest of the day. Susan swept up her broken dishes grimly. "'The Huns themselves couldn't have worked more havoc here,' she said bitterly. "'But when people will keep a satanic animal like that, in spite of all warnings, they cannot complain when their wedding-bowls get broken. Things have come to a pretty pass when an honest woman cannot leave her kitchen for a few minutes without a fiend of a cat rampaging through it with his head in a salmon-can.'" End of chapter 9「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, June 2006. Rilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 10. The Troubles of Rilla. October passed out, and the dreary days of November and December dragged by. The world shook with the thunder of contending armies. Antwerp fell. Turkey declared war. Gallant little Serbia gathered herself together and struck a deadly blow at her oppressor. And in quiet, hill-girdled, Glen St. Mary, thousands of miles away, hearts beat with hope and fear over the varying dispatches from day to day. "'A few months ago,' said Miss Oliver, "'we thought and talked in terms of Glen St. Mary. Now we think and talk in terms of military tactics and diplomatic intrigue. There was just one great event every day—the coming of the mail. Even Susan admitted that from the time the mail-courier's buggy rumbled over the little bridge between the station and the village, until the papers were brought home and read, she could not work properly.' 
I must take up my knitting, then, and knit hard till the papers come, Mrs. Dr. dear. Knitting is something you can do even when your heart is going like a trip-hammer, and the pit of your stomach feels all gone and your thoughts are catawampus. Then, when I see the headlines, be they good or be they bad, I calm down and am able to go about my business again. It is an unfortunate thing that the mail comes in just when our dinner rushes on, and I think the government could arrange things better. But the drive on Calais has failed, as I felt perfectly sure it would, and the Kaiser will not eat his Christmas dinner in London this year. Do you know, Mrs. Dr. dear? Susan's voice lowered as a token that she was going to impart a very shocking piece of information. I have been told on good authority, or else you may be sure I would not be repeating it when it concerns a minister, that the Reverend Dr. Arnold goes to Charlottetown every week and takes a Turkish bath for his rheumatism. The idea of him doing that when we were at war with Turkey? One of his own deacons has always insisted that Mr. Arnold's theology was not sound, and I am beginning to believe that there is some reason to fear it. Well, I must bestir myself this afternoon and get little Jem's Christmas cake packed up for him. He will enjoy it if the blessed boy is not drowned in mud before that time. Jem was in camp on Salisbury Plain, and was writing gay, cheery letters home in spite of the mud. Walter was at Redmond, and his letters to Rilla were anything but cheerful. She never opened one without a dread tugging at her heart that it would tell her he had enlisted. His unhappiness made her unhappy. She wanted to put her arm around him and comfort him, as she had done that day in Rainbow Valley. She hated everybody who was responsible for Walter's unhappiness. "'He will go yet,' she murmured miserably to herself one afternoon, as she sat alone in Rainbow Valley, reading a letter from him. "'He will go yet, and if he does I just can't bear it.' Walter wrote that someone had sent him an envelope containing a white feather. "'I deserved it, Rilla. I felt that I ought to put it on and wear it, proclaiming myself to all Redmond the coward I know I am. The boys of my year are going—going. Every day two or three of them join up. Some days I almost make up my mind to do it, and then I see myself thrusting a bayonet through another man, some woman's husband or sweetheart or son, perhaps the father of little children. I see myself lying alone, torn and mangled, burning with thirst on a cold, wet field, surrounded by dead and dying men, and I know I never can. I can't face even the thought of it. How could I face the reality? There are times when I wish I had never been born. Life has always seemed such a beautiful thing to me, and now it is a hideous thing. Rilla, my Rilla, if it weren't for your letters—your dear, bright, merry, funny, comical, believing letters—I think I'd give up. And Una's. Una is really a little brick, isn't she? There's a wonderful fineness and firmness under all that shy, wistful girlishness of her. She hasn't your knack of writing laugh-provoking epistles, but there's something in her letters—I don't know what—that makes me feel, at least while I'm reading them, that I could even go to the front. Not that she ever says a word about my going, or hints that I ought to go. She isn't that kind. It's just the spirit of them, the personality that is in them. Well, I can't go. You have a brother, and Una has a friend who is a coward." "'Oh, I wish Walter wouldn't write such things,' sighed Rilla. "'It hurts me. He isn't a coward. He isn't. He isn't!' She looked wistfully about her, at the little woodland valley and the grey, lonely fallows beyond. How everything reminded her of Walter! The red leaves still clung to the wild sweet briars that overhung a curve of the brook. Their stems were gemmed with the pearls of the gentle rain that had fallen a little while before. Walter had once written a poem describing them. The wind was sighing and rustling among the frosted brown bracken ferns, then lessening sorrowfully away down the brook. Walter had said once that he loved the melancholy of the autumn wind on a November day. The old tree-lovers still clasped each other in a faithful embrace, and the white lady, now a great white-branched tree, stood out beautifully fine against the grey velvet sky. Walter had named them long ago. 
and last November, when he had walked with her and Miss Oliver in the valley, he had said, looking at the leafless lady, with a young silver moon hanging over her, A white birch is a beautiful pagan maiden who has never lost the Eden secret of being naked and unashamed. Miss Oliver had said, Put that into a poem, Walter, and he had done so and read it to them the next day, just a short thing with goblin imagination in every line of it. Oh, how happy they had been then! Well, Rilla scrambled to her feet. Time was up. Jims would soon be awake. His lunch had to be prepared. His little slips had to be ironed. There was a committee meeting of the Junior Reds that night. There was her new knitting bag to finish. It would be the handsomest bag in the Junior Society, handsomer even than Irene Howard's. She must get home and get to work. She was busy these days from morning till night. That little monkey of a Jims took so much time. But he was growing. He was certainly growing. And there were times when Rilla felt sure that it was not merely a pious hope but an absolute fact that he was getting decidedly better looking. Sometimes she felt quite proud of him, and sometimes she yearned to spank him, but she never kissed him or wanted to kiss him. The Germans captured Lodz today, said Miss Oliver one December evening, when she, Mrs. Blythe, and Susan were busy sewing or knitting in the cosy living room. This war is at least extending my knowledge of geography. School ma'am though I am, three months ago I didn't know there was such a place in the world such as Lodz. Had I heard it mentioned, I would have known nothing about it and cared as little. I know all about it now its size, its standing, its military significance. Yesterday the news of the Germans have captured it, and their second rush to Warsaw made my heart sink into my boots. I woke up in the night and worried over it. I don't wonder babies always cry when they wake up in the night. Everything presses on my soul then, and no cloud has a silver lining. When I wake up in the night and cannot go to sleep again, remarked Susan, who was knitting and reading at the same time, I pass the moments by torturing the Kaiser to death. Last night I fried him in boiling oil, and a great comfort it was to me remembering those Belgian babies. If the Kaiser were here and had a pain in his shoulder, you'd be the first to run for the liniment bottle to rub him down, laughed Miss Oliver. Would I? cried outraged Susan. Would I, Miss Oliver? I would rub him down with coal oil, Miss Oliver, and leave it to blister. That is what I would do, and that you may tie to. A pain in his shoulder, indeed. He will have pains all over him before he is through with what he has started. We are told to love our enemies, Susan, said the doctor solemnly. "'Yes, our enemies, but not King George's enemies, Dr. dear,' retorted Susan, crushingly. She was so well pleased with herself over this flattening out of the doctor completely that she even smiled as she polished her glasses. Susan had never given in to glasses before, but she had done so at last in order to be able to read the war news, and not a dispatch got by her. "'Can you tell me, Miss Oliver, how to pronounce M-L-A-W-A and B-Z-U-R-A and P-R-Z-E-M Y.S.L. That last is a conundrum which nobody seems to have solved yet, Susan, and I can make only a guess at the others. These foreign names are far from being decent, in my opinion," said disgusted Susan. I dare say the Austrians and Russians would think Saskatchewan and Muscadabit about as bad, Susan," said Miss Oliver. The Serbians have done wonderfully of late. They have captured Belgrade. And sent the Austrian creatures packing across the Danube with a flea in their ear said Susan, with a relish, as she settled down to examine a map of Eastern Europe, prodding each locality with a knitting-needle to brand it on her memory. Cousin Sophia said a while ago that Serbia was done for, but I told her there was still such a thing as an overruling providence, doubted who might. It says here that the slaughter was terrible. For all they were foreigners, it is awful to think of so many men being killed, Mrs. Dr. dear, for they are scarce enough as it is. Rilla was upstairs, relieving her overcharged feelings by writing in her diary. Things have all gone catawampus, as Susan says, with me this week. Part of it was my own fault, and part of it wasn't, and I seem to be equally unhappy over both parts. 
I went to town the other day to buy a new winter hat. It was the first time nobody insisted on coming with me to help me select it, and I felt that Mother had really given up thinking of me as a child. And I found the dearest hat. It was simply bewitching. It was a velvet hat of the very shade of rich green that was made for me. It just goes with my hair and complexion beautifully, bringing out the red-brown shades and what Miss Oliver calls my creaminess so well. Only once before in my life have I come across that precise shade of green. When I was twelve I had a little beaver hat of it, and all the girls in school were wild over it. Well, as soon as I saw this hat I felt that I simply must have it, and have it I did. The price was dreadful. I will not put it down here, because I don't want my descendants to know I was guilty of paying so much for a hat, in wartime, too, when everybody is, or should be, trying to be economical. When I got home and tried on the hat again in my room I was assailed by qualms. Of course it was very becoming, but somehow it seemed too elaborate and fussy for church-going and our quiet little doings in the glen—too conspicuous, in short. It hadn't seemed so at the milliner's, but here in my little white room it did. And that dreadful price-tag! And the starving Belgians! When Mother saw the hat and the tag, she just looked at me. Mother is some expert at looking. Father says she looked him into love with her years ago in Avonlea School, and I can well believe it, though I have heard a weird tale of her banging him over the head with a slate at the very beginning of their acquaintance. Mother was a limb when she was a little girl, I understand, and even up to the time when Jem went away she was full of ginger. But let me return to my mutton—that is to say, my new green velvet hat. "'Do you think, Rilla,' Mother said quietly, far too quietly, that it was right to spend so much for a hat, especially when the need of the world is so great? I paid for it out of my own allowance, mother," I exclaimed. That is not the point. Your allowance is based on the principle of a reasonable amount for each thing you need. If you pay too much for one thing you must cut off somewhere else, and that is not satisfactory. But if you think you did right, Rilla, I have no more to say. I leave it to your conscience. I wish Mother would not leave things to my conscience. And anyway, what was I to do? I couldn't take that hat back. I had worn it to a concert in town. I had to keep it. I was so uncomfortable that I flew into a temper—a cold, calm, deadly temper. "'Mother,' I said haughtily, "'I am sorry you disapprove of my hat.' "'Not of the hat exactly,' said Mother, "'though I consider it in doubtful taste for so young a girl. But of the price you paid for it.' being interrupted didn't improve my temper, so I went on colder and calmer and deadlier than ever, just as if Mother had not spoken. But I have to keep it now. However, I promise you that I will not get another hat for three years or for the duration of the war, if it lasts longer than that. Even you—oh, the sarcasm I put into the you—cannot say that what I paid was too much when spread over at least three years." "'You will be very tired of that hat before three years, Rilla,' said Mother, with a provoking grin, which, being interpreted, meant that I wouldn't stick it out. "'Tired or not, I will wear it that long,' I said. And then I marched upstairs and cried to think that I had been sarcastic to Mother. I hate that hat already. But three years are the duration of the war, I said, and three years are the duration of the war it shall be. I vowed, and I shall keep my vow, cost what it will. That is one of the catawampus things. The other is that I have quarrelled with Irene Howard or she quarrelled with me, or—no, we both quarrelled. The Junior Red Cross met here yesterday. The hour of meeting was half-past two, but Irene came at half-past one, because she got the chance of a drive down from the Upper Glen. Irene hasn't been a bit nice to me since the fuss about the Eats, and besides I feel sure she resents not being President. But I have been determined that things should go smoothly, so I have never taken any notice, and when she came yesterday she seemed so nice and sweet again that I hoped she had got over her huffiness and we could be the chums we used to be. But as soon as we sat down Irene began to rub me the wrong way. I saw her cast a look at my new knitting-bag. 
All the girls have always said Irene was jealous-minded, and I would never believe them before. But now I feel that perhaps she is. The first thing she did was to pounce on Jims. Irene pretends to adore babies. Pick him out of his cradle and kiss him all over his face. Now Irene knows perfectly well that I don't like to have Jims kissed like that. It is not hygienic. After she had worried him till he began to fuss, she looked at me and gave me quite a nasty little laugh, but she said, oh, so sweetly, "'Why, Rilla, darling, you look as if you thought I was poisoning the baby.' "'Oh, no, I don't, Irene,' I said, every bit as sweetly. "'But you know Morgan says that the only place a baby should be kissed is on its forehead for fear of germs, and that is my rule with germs.' "'Dear me, am I so full of germs?' said Irene plaintively. I knew she was making fun of me, and I began to boil inside, but outside no sign of a simmer. I was determined I would not scrap with Irene. Then she began to bounce Jims. Now Morgan says that bouncing is almost the worst thing that can be done to a baby. I never allow Jims to be bounced. But Irene bounced him, and that exasperating child liked it. He smiled, for the very first time. He is four months old, and he has never smiled once before. Not even Mother or Susan have been able to coax that thing to smile, try as they would. And here he was, smiling because Irene Howard bounced him. Talk of gratitude! I admit that smile made a big difference in him. Two of the dearest dimples came out in his cheeks, and his big brown eyes seemed full of laughter. The way Irene raved over those dimples was silly, I consider. You would have supposed she thought she had really brought them into existence. But I sewed steadily and did not enthuse, and soon Irene got tired of bouncing Jims and put him back in his cradle. He did not like that after being played with, and he began to cry and was fussy the rest of the afternoon, whereas if Irene had only left him alone, he would not have been a bit of trouble. Irene looked at him and said, "'Does he often cry like that?' as if she had never heard a baby crying before. "'I explained patiently that children have to cry so many minutes per day in order to expand their lungs. Morgan says so. "'If Jims didn't cry at all, I'd have to make him cry for at least twenty minutes,' I said. "'Oh, indeed,' said Irene, laughing as if she didn't believe me. Morgan on the care of infants was upstairs, or I would soon have convinced her. Then she said Jims didn't have much hair. She had never seen a four-months-old baby so bald. Of course I knew Jims hadn't much hair yet, but Irene said it in a tone that seemed to imply it was my fault that he hadn't any hair. I said I had seen dozens of babies every bit as bald as Jims, and Irene said, oh, very well, she hadn't meant to offend me when I wasn't offended. It went on like that the rest of the hour. Irene kept giving me little digs all the time. The girls have always said she was revengeful like that if she were peeved about anything, but I never believed it before. I used to think Irene just perfect, and it hurt me dreadfully to find she could stoop to this. But I corked up my feelings and sewed away for dear life on a Belgian child's nightgown. Then Irene told me the meanest, most contemptible thing that someone had said about Walter. I won't write it down. I can't. Of course, she said it made her furious to hear it and all that. But there was no need for her to tell me such a thing, even if she did hear it. She simply did it to hurt me. I just exploded. How dare you come here and repeat such a thing about my brother Irene Howard! I exclaimed. I shall never forgive you. Never! Your brother hasn't enlisted, hasn't any idea of enlisting. "'Why, Rilla, dear, I didn't say it,' said Irene. "'I told you it was Mrs. George Burr, and I told her—' "'I don't want to hear what you told her. "'Don't you ever speak to me again, Irene Howard.' "'Of course I shouldn't have said that. "'But it just seemed to say itself. "'Then the other girls all came in a bunch, "'and I had to calm down and act the hostess part as well as I could. "'Irene paired off with Olive Kirk all the rest of the afternoon "'and went away without so much as a look. "'So I suppose she means to take me at my word, and I don't care.' for I do not want to be friends with a girl who could repeat such a falsehood about Walter. But I feel unhappy over it for all that. We've always been such good chums, and until lately Irene was lovely to me. And now another illusion has been stripped from my eyes, and I feel as if there wasn't such a thing as real true friendship in the world. 
Father got old Joe Mead to build a kennel for Dog Monday in the corner of the shipping shed today. We thought perhaps Monday would come home when the cold weather came, but he wouldn't. No earthly influence can coax Monday away from that shed even for a few minutes. There he stays and meets every train. So we had to do something to make him comfortable. Joe built the kennel so that Monday could lie in it and still see the platform, so we hope he will occupy it. Monday has become quite famous. A reporter of the Enterprise came out from town and photographed him and wrote up the whole story of his faithful vigil. It was published in the Enterprise and copied all over Canada. But that doesn't matter to poor little Monday. Jem has gone away. Monday doesn't know where or why. But he will wait until he comes back. Somehow it comforts me. It's foolish, I suppose, but it gives me a feeling that Jem will come back, or else Monday wouldn't keep on waiting for him. Jim's is snoring beside me in his cradle. It is just a cold that makes him snore, not adenoids. Irene had a cold yesterday, and I know she gave it to him, kissing him. He is not quite such a nuisance as he was. He has got some backbone and can sit up quite nicely, and he loves his bath now and splashes unsmilingly in the water instead of twisting and shrieking. Oh, shall I ever forget those first two months? I don't know how I lived through them. But here I am, and here is Jim's, and we both are going to carry on. I tickled him a little bit tonight when I undressed him. I wouldn't bounce him, but Morgan doesn't mention tickling, just to see if he would smile for me as well as Irene. And he did, and out popped the dimples. What a pity his mother couldn't have seen them. I finished my sixth pair of socks today. With the first three I got Susan to set the heel for me. Then I thought that was a bit of shirking, so I learned to do it myself. I hated. But I have done so many things I hate since Fourth of August that one more or less doesn't matter. I just think of Jem joking about the mud on Salisbury Plain, and I go at them. End of chapter 10「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, June 2006. Rilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 11. Dark and Bright. At Christmas the college boys and girls came home, and for a little while Ingleside was gay again. But all were not there. For the first time one was missing from the circle round the Christmas table. Jem of the steady lips and fearless eyes was far away, and Rilla felt that the sight of his vacant chair was more than she could endure. Susan had taken a stubborn freak and insisted on setting out Jem's place for him as usual, with the twisted little napkin ring he had always had since a boy, and the odd high green gables goblet that Aunt Marilla had once given him, and from which he always insisted on drinking. "'That blessed boy shall have his place, Mrs. Dr. dear,' said Susan firmly. "'And do not you feel over it, for you may be sure he is here in spirit, and next Christmas he will be here in the body. Wait you till the big push comes in the spring, and the war will be over in a jiffy.' They tried to think so, but a shadow stalked in the background of their determined merrymaking. Walter, too, was quiet and dull all through the holidays. He showed Rilla a cruel, anonymous letter he had received at Redmond, a letter far more conspicuous for malice than for patriotic indignation. Nevertheless, all it says is true, Rilla. Rilla had caught it from him and thrown it into the fire. "'There isn't one word of truth in it,' she declared hotly. "'Walter, you've got morbid, as Miss Oliver says she gets when she broods too long over one thing.' I can't get away from it at Redmond, Rilla. The whole college is aflame over the war. A perfectly fit fellow of military age who doesn't join up is looked upon as a shirker and treated accordingly. Dr. Milne, the English professor who has always made a special pet of me, has two sons in khaki, and I can feel the change in his manner towards me. It's not fair. You're not fit. Physically I am. Sound as a bell. The unfitness is in the soul, and it's a taint and a disgrace. There, don't cry, Rilla. I'm not going, if that's what you're afraid of. The piper's music rings in my ears day and night, but I cannot follow. 
"'You would break Mother's heart and mine if you did,' sobbed Rilla. "'Oh, Walter, one is enough for any family.' The holidays were an unhappy time for her. Still, having Nan and Di and Walter and Shirley home helped in the enduring of things. A letter and book came for her from Kenneth Ford, too. Some sentences in the letter made her cheeks burn and her heart beat, until the last paragraph, which sent an icy chill over everything. "'My ankle is about as good as new. I'll be fit to join up in a couple of months more, Rilla, my Rilla. It will be some feeling to get into khaki, all right. Little Ken will be able to look the whole world in the face then, and owe not any man. It's been rotten lately since I've been able to walk without limping. People who don't know look at me as much as to say slacker. Well, they won't have the chance to look it much longer.' "'I hate this war,' said Rilla bitterly, as she gazed out into the maple grove that was a chill glory of pink and gold in the winter sunset. "'1914 has gone,' said Dr. Blythe on New Year's Day. "'Its sun, which rose fairly, has set in blood. "'What will 1915 bring?' "'Victory,' said Susan, for once laconic. "'Do you really believe we'll win the war, Susan?' said Miss Oliver drearily. She had come over from Lowbridge to spend the day and see Walter and the girls before they went back to Redmond. She was in a rather blue and cynical mood, and inclined to look on the dark side. "'Believe we'll win the war!' exclaimed Susan. "'No, Miss Oliver, dear, I do not believe. I know. That does not worry me. What does worry me is the trouble and expense of it all. But then you cannot make omelettes without breaking eggs, so we must just trust in God and make big guns.' "'Sometimes I think the big guns are better to trust in than God,' said Miss Oliver defiantly. "'No, no, dear, you do not. The Germans had the big guns of the Marne, had they not? But Providence settled them.' Do not ever forget that. Just hold on to that when you feel inclined to doubt. Clutch hold of the sides of your chair and sit tight and keep saying, Big guns are good, but the Almighty is better, and He is on our side, no matter what the Kaiser says about it. I would have gone crazy many a day lately, Miss Oliver, dear, if I had not sat tight and repeated that to myself. My cousin Sophia is, like you, somewhat inclined to despond. Oh, dear me, what will we do if the Germans ever get here? she wailed to me yesterday. Bury them, said I, just as offhand as that. There's plenty of room for the graves. Cousin Sophia said that I was flippant, but I was not flippant, Miss Oliver, dear, only calm and confident in the British Navy and our Canadian boys. I am like old Mr. William Pollock of the Harbour Head. He is very old and has been ill for a long time, and one night last week he was so low that his daughter-in-law whispered to someone that she thought he was dead. "'Darn it, I ain't!' he called right out. Only, Miss Oliver, dear, he did not use so mild a word as darn. "'Darn it, I ain't, and I don't mean to die until the Kaiser's well licked!' Now that, Miss Oliver, dear, concluded Susan, is the kind of spirit I admire. I admire it, but I can't emulate it, sighed Gertrude. Before this I have always been able to escape from the hard things of life for a little while by going into dreamland, and coming back like a giant refreshed. But I can't escape from this. Nor I, said Mrs. Blythe. I hate going to bed now. All my life I've liked going to bed, to have a gay, mad, splendid half-hour of imagining things before sleeping. Now I imagine them still— but such different things. "'I am rather glad when the time comes to go to bed,' said Miss Oliver. "'I like the darkness because I can be myself in it. I needn't smile or talk bravely. But sometimes my imagination gets out of hand, too, and I see what you do—terrible things, terrible years to come.' "'I am very thankful that I have never had any imagination to speak of,' said Susan. "'I have been spared that. I see by this paper that the Crown Prince is killed again. Do you suppose there is any hope of his staying dead this time?' And I also see that Woodrow Wilson is going to write another note. I wonder, concluded Susan, with the bitter irony she had of late begun to use when referring to the poor president, if that man, schoolmaster, is alive. In January, Jims was five months old, and Rilla celebrated the anniversary by shortening him. 
"'He weighs fourteen pounds,' she announced jubilantly, "'just exactly what he should weigh at five months, according to Morgan.' There was no longer any doubt in anybody's mind that Jims was getting positively pretty. His little cheeks were round and firm and faintly pink. His eyes were big and bright. His tiny paws had dimples at the root of every finger. He had even begun to grow hair, much to Rilla's unspoken relief. There was a pale golden fuzz all over his head that was distinctly visible in some lights. He was a good infant, generally sleeping and digesting as Morgan decreed. Occasionally he smiled, but he had never laughed, in spite of all efforts to make him. This worried Rilla also, because Morgan said that babies usually laughed aloud from the third to the fifth month. Jims was five months and had no notion of laughing. Why hadn't he? Wasn't he normal? One night Rilla came home late from a recruiting meeting at the Glen where she had been giving patriotic recitations. Rilla had never been willing to recite in public before. She was afraid of her tendency to lisp, which had a habit of reviving if she were doing anything that made her nervous. When she had first been asked to recite at the Upper Glen meeting she had refused. Then she began to worry over her refusal. Was it cowardly? What would Jem think if he knew? After two days of worry Rilla phoned to the president of the Patriotic Society and said that she would recite. She did, and lisped several times, and lay awake most of the night in an agony of wounded vanity. Then two days after she recited again at Harbour Head. She had been at Lowbridge and over Harbour since then, and had become resigned to an occasional lisp. Nobody except herself seemed to mind it. And she was so earnest and appealing and shining-eyed. More than one recruit joined up because Rilla's eyes seemed to look right at him when she passionately demanded how could men die better than fighting for the ashes of their fathers and the temples of their gods, or assured her audience with thrilling intensity that one crowded hour of glorious life was worth an age without a name. Even stolid Miller Douglas was so fired one night that it took Mary Vance a good hour to talk him back to sense. Mary Vance said bitterly that if Rilla Blythe felt as bad as she had pretended to feel over Jem's going to the front, she wouldn't be urging other girls' brothers and friends to go. On this particular night, Rilla was tired and cold, and very thankful to creep into her warm nest and cuddle down between her blankets, though as usual with a sorrowful wonder how Jem and Jerry were faring. She was just getting warm and drowsy when Jim suddenly began to cry, and kept on crying. Rilla curled herself up in her bed and determined that she would let him cry. She had Morgan behind her for justification. Jim's was warm, physically comfortable, his cry wasn't the cry of pain, and had his little tummy as full as was good for him. Under such circumstances it would be simply spoiling him to fuss over him, and she wasn't going to do it. He could cry until he got good and tired and ready to go to sleep again. Then Rilla's imagination began to torment her. Suppose, she thought, I was a tiny, helpless creature only five months old, with my father somewhere in France and my poor little mother, who had been so worried about me, in the graveyard. Suppose I was lying in a basket in a big black room without one speck of light, and nobody within miles of me for all I could see or know. Suppose there wasn't a human being anywhere who loved me. For a father who had never seen me couldn't love me very much, especially when he had never written a word to or about me. Wouldn't I cry, too? Wouldn't I feel just so lonely and forsaken and frightened that I'd have to cry? Rilla hopped out. She picked Jims out of his basket and took him into her own bed. His hands were cold, poor mite. But he had promptly ceased to cry. And then, as she held him close to her in the darkness, suddenly Jims laughed. A real, gurgly, chuckly, delighted, delightful laugh. "'Oh, you dear little thing!' exclaimed Rilla. "'Are you so pleased at finding you're not all alone, lost in a huge, big, black room?' Then she knew she wanted to kiss him, and she did. She kissed his silky, scented little head. She kissed his chubby little cheek. She kissed his little cold hands. She wanted to squeeze him, to cuddle him, just as she used to squeeze and cuddle her kittens. Something delightful and yearning and brooding seemed to have taken possession of her. She had never felt like this before. In a few minutes Jims was sound asleep. 
and as Rilla listened to his soft, regular breathing, and felt the little body warm and contented against her, she realized that, at last, she loved her war-baby. "'He has got to be such a darling,' she thought drowsily, as she drifted off to slumberland herself. In February Jem and Jerry and Robert Grant were in the trenches, and a little more tension and dread was added to the Ingleside life. In March, Ypres, as Susan called it, had come to have a bitter significance. The daily list of casualties had begun to appear in the papers, and no one at Ingleside ever answered the telephone without a horrible cold shrinking, for it might be the station-master phoning up to say a telegram had come from overseas. No one at Ingleside ever got up in the morning without a sudden piercing wonder over what the day might bring. "'And I used to welcome the morning so,' thought Rilla. Yet the round of life and duty went steadily on, and every week or so one of the Glen lads who had just the other day been a rollicking schoolboy went into khaki. "'It is bitter cold out tonight, Mrs. Dr. dear,' said Susan, coming in out of the clear starlit crispness of the Canadian winter twilight. "'I wonder if the boys in the trenches are warm.' "'How everything comes back to this war!' cried Gertrude Oliver. "'We can't get away from it, not even when we talk about the weather. I never go out these dark cold nights myself without thinking of the men in the trenches.' Not only our men, but everybody's men. I would feel the same if there were nobody I knew at the front. When I snuggle down in my comfortable bed, I am ashamed of being comfortable. It seems as if it were wicked of me to be so when many are not. "'I saw Mrs. Meredith down at the store,' said Susan, "'and she tells me that they are really troubled over Bruce. He takes things so much to heart. He has cried himself to sleep for a week over the starving Belgians. "'Oh, mother,' he will say to her, so beseeching-like, "'surely the babies are never hungry. Oh, not the babies, mother!' "'Just say the babies are not hungry, mother.' "'And she cannot say it, because it would not be true. "'And she is at her wit's end. "'They try to keep such things from him, but he finds them out, "'and then they cannot comfort him. "'It breaks my heart to read about them myself, Mrs. Dr. dear, "'and I cannot console myself with the thought that the tales are not true. "'When I read a novel that makes me want to weep, "'I just say severely to myself, "'Now, Susan Baker, you know that is all a pack of lies. "'But we must carry on. "'Jack Crawford says he is going to the war because he is tired of farming.' I hope he will find it a pleasant change. And Mrs. Richard Elliot over harbour is wearing herself sick, because she used to be always scolding her husband about smoking up the parlour curtains. Now that he has enlisted, she wishes she had never said a word to him. You know Josiah Cooper and William Daly, Mrs. Dr. dear? They used to be fast friends, but they quarrelled twenty years ago, and have never spoken since. Well, the other day Josiah went to William and said, "'Ride out. Let us be friends. Tain't any time to be holding grudges.' William was real glad, and held out his hand, and they sat down for a good talk, and in less than half an hour they had quarrelled again over how the war ought to be fought, Josiah holding that the Dardanelles expedition was rank folly, and William maintaining that it was the one sensible thing the Allies had done. And now they are madder at each other than ever, and William says Josiah is as bad a pro-German as Whiskers on the Moon. Whiskers on the Moon vows he is no pro-German, but calls himself a pacifist, whatever that may be. It is nothing proper, or Whiskers would not be it, and that you may tie to. He says that the big British victory at New Chapelle cost more than it was worth, and he has forbid Joe Milgrave to come near the house, because Joe ran up his father's flag when the news came. Have you noticed, Mrs. Dr. dear, that the Tsar has changed that prish name to Premisel, which proves that the man had good sense, Russian though he is? Joe Vickers told me in the store that he saw a very queer-looking thing in the sky tonight over Lowbridge Way. Do you suppose it could have been a Zeppelin, Mrs. Dr. dear? I do not think it very likely, Susan. Well, I would feel easier about it if Whiskers on the Moon were not living in the Glen. They say he was seen going through strange manoeuvres with a lantern in his back yard one night lately. Some people think he was signalling. To whom? Or what? Ah, that is the mystery, Mrs. Dr. dear. In my opinion, the government would do well to keep an eye on that man, if it does not want us to be all murdered in our beds some night. 
Now I shall just look over the papers a minute before going to write a letter to little Jem. Two things I never did, Mrs. Dr. dear, were write letters and read politics. Yet here I am, doing both regular, and I find there is something in politics after all. Whatever Woodrow Wilson means I cannot fathom, but I am hoping I will puzzle it out yet. Susan, in her pursuit of Wilson and politics, presently came upon something that disturbed her, and exclaimed in a tone of bitter disappointment, "'That devilish Kaiser has only a boil, after all!' "'Don't swear, Susan,' said Dr. Blythe, pulling a long face. "'Devilish is not swearing, Dr. dear. I have always understood that swearing was taking the name of the Almighty in vain.' "'Well, it isn't—refined,' <clears throat> said the doctor, winking at Miss Oliver. "'No, Dr. dear. The devil and the Kaiser, if so be that they are really two different people, are not refined, and you cannot refer to them in a refined way. So I abide by what I said, although you may notice that I am careful not to use such expressions when young Rilla is about. And I maintain that the papers have no right to say that the Kaiser has pneumonia and raise people's hopes, and then come out and say he has nothing but a boil. A boil, indeed. I wish he was covered with them. Susan stalked out to the kitchen and settled down to write to Jem, deeming him in need of some home comfort from certain passages in his letter that day. "'We're in an old wine-cellar to-night, Dad,' he wrote, "'in water to our knees. Rats everywhere. No fire. A drizzling rain coming down. Rather dismal. But it might be worse. I got Susan's box to-day, and everything was in tip-top order, and we had a feast. Jerry is up the line somewhere, and he says the rations are rather worse than Aunt Martha's ditto used to be. But here they're not bad, only monotonous. Tell Susan I'd give a year's pay for a good batch of her monkey-faces, but don't let that inspire her to send any, for they wouldn't keep. We have been under fire since the last week in February.' One boy—he was a Nova Scotian—was killed right beside me yesterday. A shell burst near us, and when the mess cleared away he was lying dead. Not mangled at all. He just looked a little startled. It was the first time I'd been close to anything like that, and it was a nasty sensation. But one soon gets used to horrors here. We're in an absolutely different world. The only things that are the same are the stars. And they are never in their right places, somehow. Tell Mother not to worry. I'm all right. Fit as a fiddle. And glad I came. There's something across from us here that has got to be wiped out of the world, that's all. An emanation of evil that would otherwise poison life forever. It's got to be done, Dad, however long it takes, and whatever it costs. And you tell the Glen people this for me. They don't realize yet what it is has broken loose. I didn't when I first joined up. I thought it was fun. Well, it isn't. But I'm in the right place all right. Make no mistake about that. When I saw what had been done here to homes and gardens and people—well, Dad— I seemed to see a gang of Huns marching through Rainbow Valley in the Glen and the garden at Ingleside. There were gardens over here—beautiful gardens, with the beauty of centuries, and what are they now? Mangled, desecrated things. We are fighting to make those dear old places where we had played as children safe for other boys and girls, fighting for the preservation and safety of all sweet, wholesome things. Whenever any of you go to the station, be sure to give Dog Monday a double pat for me. Fancy the faithful little beggar waiting there for me like that. Honestly, Dad, on some of these dark, cold nights in the trenches, it heartens and braces me up no end to think that thousands of miles away at the old Glen station there is a small spotted dog sharing my vigil. Tell Rilla I'm glad her war-baby is turning out so well, and tell Susan that I'm fighting a good fight against both Huns and cooties. Mrs. Doctor, dear, whispered Susan solemnly, what are cooties? Mrs. Blythe whispered back, and then said in reply to Susan's horrified ejaculations, It's always like that in the trenches, Susan. Susan shook her head and went away in grim silence to reopen a parcel she had sewed up for Jem and slip in a fine-tooth comb. End of chapter 11
Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, June 2006. Brilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 12. In the Days of Langemark. How can spring come and be beautiful in such a horror? wrote Rilla in her diary, when the sun shines and the fluffy yellow catkins are coming out on the willow trees down by the brook, and the garden is beginning to be beautiful, I can't realize that such dreadful things are happening in Flanders. But they are. This past week has been terrible for us all, since the news came of the fighting round Ypres, and the battles of Langemarck and St. Julian. Our Canadian boys have done splendidly. General French says they saved the situation when the Germans had all but broken through. But I can't feel pride or exultation or anything but a gnawing anxiety over Jem and Jerry and Mr. Grant. The casualty lists are coming out in the papers every day. Oh, there are so many of them. I can't bear to read them for fear I'd find Jem's name, for there have been cases where people have seen their boys' names in the casualty list before the official telegram came. As for the telephone, for a day or two I just refused to answer it, because I thought I could not endure the horrible moment that came between saying hello and hearing the response. That moment seemed a hundred years long, for I was always dreading to hear, There is a telegram for Dr. Blythe. Then, when I had shirked for a while, I was ashamed of leaving it all for Mother or Susan, and now I make myself go. But it never gets any easier. Gertrude teaches school and reads compositions and sets examination papers just as she always has done, but I know her thoughts are over in Flanders all the time. Her eyes haunt me. And Kenneth is in khaki now, too. He has got a lieutenant's commission and expects to go overseas in midsummer, so he wrote me. There wasn't much else in the letter. He seemed to be thinking of nothing but going overseas. I shall not see him again before he goes. Perhaps I will never see him again. Sometimes I ask myself if that evening at Four Winds was all a dream. It might as well be. It seems as if it happened in another life, lived years ago, and everybody has forgotten it but me. Walter and Nan and Di came home last night from Redmond. When Walter stepped off the train, Dog Monday rushed to meet him, frantic with joy. I suppose he thought Jem would be there, too. After the first moment he paid no attention to Walter and his pads, but just stood there, wagging his tail nervously and looking past Walter at the other people coming out, with eyes that made me choke up, for I couldn't help thinking that, for all we knew, Monday might never see Jem come off that train again. Then when all the people were out, Monday looked up at Walter, gave his hand a little lick as if to say— I know it isn't your fault he didn't come. Excuse me for feeling disappointed. And then he trotted back to his shed, with that funny little sidelong waggle of his that always makes it seem that his hind legs are travelling directly away from the point at which his forelegs are aiming. We tried to coax him home with us. Di even got down and kissed him between the eyes and said, Monday, old duck, won't you come with us just for the evening? And Monday said, he did. I'm very sorry, but I can't. I've got a date to meet Jem here, you know, and there's a train goes through at eight. It's lovely to have Walter back again, though he seems quiet and sad, just as he was at Christmas. But I'm going to love him hard and cheer him up and make him laugh as he used to. It seems to me that every day of my life Walter means more to me. The other evening Susan happened to say that the Mayflowers were out in Rainbow Valley. I chanced to be looking at Mother when Susan spoke. Her face changed and she gave a queer little choked cry. Most of the time Mother is so spunky and gay you would never guess what she feels inside. But now and then some little thing is too much for her, and we see under the surface. Mayflowers, she said. Jem brought me Mayflowers last year. And she got up and went out of the room. I would have rushed off to Rainbow Valley and brought her an armful of Mayflowers, but I knew that wasn't what she wanted. And after Walter got home last night he slipped away to the valley and brought Mother home all the Mayflowers he could find. Nobody had said a word to him about it. He just remembered himself that Jem used to bring Mother the first Mayflowers, and so he brought them in Jem's place. It shows how tender and thoughtful he is. And yet there are people who send him cruel letters. 
It seems strange that we can go on with ordinary life just as if nothing were happening overseas that concerned us, just as if any day might not bring us awful news. But we can and do. Susan is putting in the garden, and Mother and she are house-cleaning, and we junior Reds are getting up a concert in aid of the Belgians. We have been practicing for a month and having no end of trouble and bother with cranky people. Miranda Pryor promised to help with a dialogue, and when she had her part all learned, her father put his foot down and refused to allow her to help at all. I am not blaming Miranda exactly, but I do think she might have a little more spunk sometimes. If she put her foot down once in a while, she might bring her father to terms, for she is all the housekeeper he has, and what would he do if she struck? If I were in Miranda's shoes, I'd find some way of managing whiskers on the moon. I would horsewhip him or bite him if nothing else would serve. But Miranda is a meek and obedient daughter whose days should be long in the land. I couldn't get anyone else to take the part, because nobody liked it, so finally I had to take it myself. Olive Kirk is on the concert committee and goes against me in every single thing. But I got my way in asking Mrs. Channing to come out from town and sing for us anyhow. She is a beautiful singer, and will draw such a crowd that we will make more than we will have to pay her. Olive Kirk thought our local talent good enough, and Minnie Clough won't sing at all now in the choruses because she would be so nervous before Mrs. Channing. And Minnie is the only good alto we have. There are times when I am so exasperated that I feel tempted to wash my hands of the whole affair. But after I dance around my room a few times in sheer rage, I cool down and have another whack at it. Just at present I am racked with worry for fear the Isaac Reeses are taking whooping cough. They have all got a dreadful cold, and there are five of them who have important parts in the program, and if they go and develop whooping cough, what shall I do? Dick Reese's violin solo is to be one of our titbits, and Kit Reese is in every tableau, and the three small girls have the cutest flag drill. I've been toiling for weeks to train them in it, and now it seems likely that all my trouble will go for nothing. Jim's cut his first tooth today. I am very glad, for he is nearly nine months old, and Mary Vance has been insinuating that he is awfully backward about cutting his teeth. He has begun to creep, but doesn't crawl as most babies do. He trots about on all fours, and carries things in his mouth like a little dog. Nobody can say he isn't up to schedule time in the matter of creeping, anyway. Way ahead of it, indeed, since ten months is Morgan's average for creeping. He is so cute it will be a shame if his dad never sees him. His hair is coming on nicely, too, and I am not without hope that it will be curly. Just for a few minutes, while I've been writing of Jim's in the concert, I've forgotten Ypres, and the poison gas in the casualty list. Now it all rushes back, worse than ever. Oh, if we could just know that Jem is all right! I used to be so furious with Jem when he called me Spider, and now if he would just come whistling through the hall and call out, Hello, Spider, as he used to, I would think it the loveliest name in the world. Rilla put away her diary and went out to the garden. The spring evening was very lovely. The long, green, seaward-looking glen was filled with dusk, and beyond it were meadows of sunset. The harbour was radiant, purple here, azure there, opal elsewhere. The maple grove was beginning to be misty green. Rilla looked about her with wistful eyes. Who said that spring was the joy of the year? It was the heartbreak of the year. And the pale purply mornings and the daffodil stars and the wind in the old pine were so many separate pangs of the heartbreak. Would life ever be free from dread again? It's good to see P.E.I. twilight once more, said Walter, joining her. I didn't really remember that the sea was so blue and the road so red and the wood nooks so wild and fairy haunted. Yes, the fairies still abide here. I vow I could find scores of them under the violets in Rainbow Valley. Rilla was momentarily happy. This sounded like the Walter of yore. She hoped he was forgetting certain things that had troubled him. "'And isn't the sky blue over Rainbow Valley?' she said, responding to his mood. "'Blue, blue. You'd have to say blue a hundred times before you could express how blue it is.' Susan wandered by, her head tied up with a shawl, her hands full of garden implements. 
dark, stealthy, and wild-eyed, was shadowing her steps among the spirea bushes. "'The sky may be blue,' said Susan, "'but that cat has been hide all day, so we will likely have rain to-night, and by the same token I have rheumatism in my shoulder.' "'It may rain, but don't think rheumatism, Susan. Think violets,' said Walter gaily. "'Rather too gaily, Rilla thought. Susan considered him unsympathetic. "'Indeed, Walter, dear, I do not know what you mean by thinking violets,' she responded stiffly. "'And rheumatism is not a thing to be joked about, as you may some day realize for yourself. I hope I am not of the kind that is always complaining of their aches and pains, especially now when the news is so terrible. Rheumatism is bad enough, but I realize, and none better, that it is not to be compared to being gassed by the Huns.' "'Oh, my God, no!' exclaimed Walter passionately. He turned and went back to the house. Susan shook her head. She disapproved entirely of such ejaculations. I hope he will not let his mother hear him talking like that, she thought as she stacked the hose and rake away. Rilla was standing among the budding daffodils with tear-filled eyes. Her evening was spoiled. She detested Susan, who had somehow hurt Walter. And Jem—had Jem been gassed? Had he died in torture? I can't endure the suspense any longer, said Rilla desperately. But she endured it as the others did for another week. Then a letter came from Jem. He was all right. I've come through without a scratch, Dad. Don't know how I or any of us did it. You'll have seen all about it in the papers. I can't write of it. But the Huns haven't got through. They won't get through. Jerry was knocked stiff by a shell one time, but it was only the shock. He was all right in a few days. Grant is safe, too. Nan had a letter from Jerry Meredith. I came back to consciousness at dawn, he wrote. Couldn't tell what had happened to me, but thought that I was done for. I was all alone and afraid—terribly afraid. Dead men were all around me, lying on the horrible, grey, slimy fields. I was woefully thirsty, and I thought of David and the Bethlehem water, and of the old spring in Rainbow Valley under the maples. I seemed to see it just before me, and you standing laughing on the other side of it, and I thought it was all over with me, and I didn't care. Honestly, I didn't care. I just felt a dreadful, childish fear of loneliness and of those dead men around me, and a sort of wonder how this could have happened to me. Then they found me and carted me off, and before long I discovered that there wasn't really anything wrong with me. I'm going back to the trenches tomorrow. Every man is needed there that can be got." "'Laughter has gone out of the world,' said Faith Meredith, who had come over to report on her letters. I remember telling old Mrs. Taylor long ago that the world was a world of laughter, but it isn't so any longer. "'It's a shriek of anguish,' said Gertrude Oliver. "'We must keep a little laughter, girls,' said Mrs. Blythe. "'A good laugh is as good as a prayer sometimes.' Only sometimes," she added under her breath. She had found it very hard to laugh during the three weeks she had just lived through. She, Anne Blythe, to whom laughter had always come so easily and freshly. And what hurt most was that Rilla's laughter had grown so rare—Rilla, whom she used to think laughed overmuch. Was all the child's girlhood to be so clouded? Yet how strong and clever and womanly she was growing! How patiently she knitted and sewed and manipulated those uncertain junior reds! And how wonderful she was with Jim's! She really could not do better for that child than if she had raised a baker's dozen, Mrs. Dr. dear," Susan had avowed solemnly. Little did I ever expect it of her on the day she landed here with that soup tureen. End of chapter 12《Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, June 2006. — Rilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery Chapter 13 — A Slice of Humble Pie — I am very much afraid, Mrs. Dr. dear, said Susan, who had been on a pilgrimage to the station with some choice bones for Dog Monday, that something terrible has happened. 
Whiskers on the Moon came off the train from Charlottetown, and he was looking pleased. I do not remember that I ever saw him with a smile on in public before. Of course, he may have just been getting the better of somebody in a cattle deal, but I have an awful presentiment that the Huns have broken through somewhere. Perhaps Susan was unjust in connecting Mr. Pryor's smile with the sinking of the Lusitania, news of which circulated an hour later when the mail was distributed. But the Glen boys turned out that night in a body and broke all his windows in a fine frenzy of indignation over the Kaiser's doing. I do not say they did right, and I do not say they did wrong, said Susan when she heard of it, but I will say that I wouldn't have minded throwing a few stones myself. One thing is certain. Whiskers on the Moon said in the post office the day the news came, in the presence of witnesses, that folks who could not stay at home after they had been warned deserved no better fate. Norman Douglas is fairly foaming at the mouth over it all. If the devil doesn't get those men who sunk the Lusitania, then there is no use in there being a devil, he was shouting in Carter's store last night. Norman Douglas always has believed that anybody who opposed him was on the side of the devil, but a man like that is bound to be right once in a while. Bruce Meredith is worrying over the babies who were drowned, and it seems he prayed for something very special last Friday night and didn't get it, and was feeling quite disgruntled over it. But when he heard about the Lusitania, he told his mother that he understood now why God hadn't answered his prayer. He was too busy attending to the souls of all the people who went down on the Lusitania. That child's brain is a hundred years older than his body, Mrs. Dr. dear. As for the Lusitania, it is an awful occurrence, whatever way you look at it. But Woodrow Wilson is going to write a note about it, so why worry? A pretty president, said Susan, banging her pots about wrathfully. President Wilson was rapidly becoming anathema in Susan's kitchen. Mary Vance dropped in one evening to tell the Ingleside folks that she had withdrawn all opposition to Miller Douglas's enlisting. This Lusitania business is too much for me, said Mary brusquely. When the Kaiser takes to drowning innocent babies, it's high time somebody told him where he gets off at. This thing must be fought to a finish. It's been soaking into my mind slow, but I'm on now. So I up and told Miller he could go as far as I was concerned. Old Kitty Alec won't be converted, though. If every ship in the world was submarined and every baby drowned, Kitty wouldn't turn a hair. But I flatter myself that it was me kept Miller back all along, and not the fair Kitty. I may have deceived myself, but we shall see. They did see. The next Sunday Miller Douglas walked into the Glen Church beside Mary Vance in khaki, and Mary was so proud of him that her white eyes fairly blazed. Joe Milgrave, back under the gallery, looked at Miller and Mary, and then at Miranda Pryor, and sighed so heavily that every one within a radius of three pews heard him and knew what his trouble was. Walter Blythe did not sigh, but Rilla, scanning his face anxiously, saw a look that cut into her heart. It haunted her for the next week and made an undercurrent of soreness in her soul, which was externally being harrowed up by the near approach of the Red Cross concert and the worries connected therewith. The Reese cold had not developed into whooping cough, so that tangle was straightened out. But other things were hanging in the balance, and on the very day before the concert came a regretful letter from Mrs. Channing, saying that she could not come to sing. Her son, who was in Kingsport with his regiment, was seriously ill with pneumonia, and she must go to him at once. The members of the concert committee looked at each other in blank dismay. What was to be done? This comes of depending on outside help, said Olive Kirk disagreeably. We must do something, said Rilla, too desperate to care for Olive's manner. We've advertised the concert everywhere, and crowds are coming. There's even a big party coming out from town. And we were short enough of music as it was. We must get someone to sing in Mrs. Channing's place. I don't know who you can get at this late date, said Olive. Irene Howard could do it, but it is not likely she will after the way she was insulted by our society. How did our society insult her? asked Rilla in what she called her cold, pale tone. Its coldness and pallor did not daunt Olive. You insulted her she answered sharply. Irene told me all about it. She was literally broken-hearted. 
You told her never to speak to you again, and Irene told me she simply could not imagine what she had said or done to deserve such treatment. That was why she never came to our meetings again, but joined in with the Lowbridge Red Cross. I do not blame her in the least, and I, for one, will not ask her to lower herself by helping us out of this scrape. "'You don't expect me to ask her,' giggled Amy McAllister, the other member of the committee. "'Irene and I haven't spoken for a hundred years. Irene is always getting insulted by somebody. But she is a lovely singer, I'll admit that, and people would just as soon hear her as Mrs. Channing.' "'It wouldn't do any good if you did ask her,' said Olive significantly. Soon after we began planning this concert back in April, I met Irene in town one day and asked her if she wouldn't help us out. She said she'd love to, but she really didn't see how she could when Rilla Blythe was running the program, after the strange way Rilla had behaved to her. So there it is, and here we are, and a nice failure our concert will be. Rilla went home and shut herself up in her room, her soul in a turmoil. She would not humiliate herself by apologizing to Irene Howard. Irene had been as much in the wrong as she had been, and she had told such mean, distorted versions of their quarrel everywhere, posing as a puzzled, injured martyr. Rilla could never bring herself to tell her side of it. The fact that a slur at Walter was mixed up in it tied her tongue. So most people believed that Irene had been badly used, except a few girls who had never liked her and sided with Rilla. And yet, the concert over which she had worked so hard was going to be a failure. Mrs. Channing's four solos were the feature of the whole program. "'Miss Oliver, what do you think about it?' she asked in desperation. "'I think Irene is the one who should apologize,' said Miss Oliver. "'But unfortunately my opinion will not fill the blanks in your program. "'If I went and apologized meekly to Irene, she would sing, I am sure,' sighed Rilla. "'She really loves to sing in public. "'But I know she'll be nasty about it. "'I feel I'd rather do anything than go. "'I suppose I should go. "'If Jem and Jerry can face the Huns, surely I can face Irene Howard "'and swallow my pride to ask a favour of her for the good of the Belgians.' Just at present, I feel that I cannot do it. But for all that, I have a presentiment that after supper you'll see me meekly trotting through Rainbow Valley on my way to the Upper Glen Road. Rilla's presentiment proved correct. After supper, she dressed herself carefully in her blue beaded crepe, for vanity is harder to quell than pride, and Irene always saw any flaw or shortcoming in another girl's appearance. Besides, as Rilla had told her mother one day when she was nine years old, it is easier to behave nicely when you have your good clothes on. Rilla did her hair very becomingly, and donned a long raincoat for fear of a shower. But all the while her thoughts were concerned with the coming distasteful interview, and she kept rehearsing mentally her part in it. She wished it were over. She wished she had never tried to get up a Belgian relief concert. She wished she had not quarrelled with Irene. After all, disdainful silence would have been much more effective in meeting the slur upon Walter. It was foolish and childish to fly out as she had done. Well, she would be wiser in the future. But meanwhile, a large and very unpalatable slice of humble pie had to be eaten, and Rilla Blythe was no fonder of that wholesome article of diet than the rest of us. By sunset she was at the door of the Howard House, a pretentious abode with white scroll-work around the eaves, and an eruption of bay windows on all its sides. Mrs. Howard, a plump, voluble dame, met Rilla gushingly, and left her in the parlour while she went to call Irene. Rilla threw off her raincoat and looked at herself critically in the mirror over the mantel. Hair, hat, and dress were satisfactory. Nothing there for Miss Irene to make fun of. Rilla remembered how clever and amusing she used to think Irene's biting little comments about other girls. Well, it had come home to her now. Presently Irene skimmed down, elegantly gowned, with her pale, straw-coloured hair done in the latest and most extreme fashion, and an over-luscious atmosphere of perfume enveloping her. "'Why, how do you do, Miss Blythe?' she said sweetly. "'This is a very unexpected pleasure.' Rilla had risen to take Irene's chilly fingertips, and now, as she sat down again, she saw something that temporarily stunned her. Irene saw it, too, as she sat down, 
and a little amused impertinent smile appeared on her lips and hovered there during the rest of the interview. On one of Rilla's feet was a smart little steel-buckled shoe and a filmy blue silk stocking. The other was clad in a stout and rather shabby boot and black lisle. Poor Rilla! She had changed, or begun to change, her boots and stockings after she had put on her dress. This was the result of doing one thing with your hands and another with your brain. Oh, what a ridiculous position to be in, and before Irene Howard of all people! Irene, who was staring at Rilla's feet as if she had never seen feet before. And once she had thought Irene's manner perfection. Everything that Rilla had prepared to say vanished from her memory. Vainly trying to tuck her unlucky foot under a chair, she blurted out a blunt statement. "'I've come to ask a favour of you, Irene.' Fair. Lisping. Oh, she had been prepared for humiliation, but not to this extent. Really, there were limits. "'Yes,' said Irene, in a cool, questioning tone, lifting her shallowly set, insolent eyes to Rilla's crimson face for a moment, and then dropping them again as if she could not tear them from their fascinated gaze at the shabby boot and the gallant shoe. Rilla gathered herself together. She would not lisp. She would be calm and composed. "'Mrs. Channing cannot come, because her son is ill in Kingsport, and I have come on behalf of the committee to ask you if you will be so kind as to sing for us in her place.' Rilla enunciated every word so precisely and carefully that she seemed to be reciting a lesson. "'It's something of a fiddler's invitation, isn't it?' said Irene, with one of her disagreeable smiles. "'Olive Kirk asked you to help when we first thought of the concert, and you refused,' said Rilla. "'Why, I could hardly help then, could I?' asked Irene plaintively. "'After you ordered me never to speak to you again? It would have been very awkward for us both, don't you think?' "'Now for the humble pie.' "'I want to apologize to you for saying that, Irene.' said Rilla steadily. I should not have said it, and I have been very sorry ever since. Will you forgive me? And sing at your concert? said Irene, sweetly and insultingly. If you mean, said Rilla miserably, that I would not be apologizing to you if it were not for the concert, perhaps that is true. But it is also true that I have felt ever since it happened that I should not have said what I did, and that I have been sorry for it all winter. That is all I can say. If you feel you can't forgive me, I suppose there is nothing more to be said." "'Oh, Rilla, dear, don't snap me up like that,' pleaded Irene. "'Of course I'll forgive you, though I did feel awfully about it. How awfully I hope you'll never know. I cried for weeks over it, and I hadn't said or done a thing.' Rilla choked back a retort. After all, there was no use in arguing with Irene, and the Belgians were starving. "'Don't you think you can help us with the concert?' she forced herself to say. "'Oh, if only Irene would stop looking at that boot!' Rilla could just hear her giving Olive Kirk an account of it. "'I don't see how I really can at the last moment like this,' protested Irene. "'There isn't time to learn anything new.' "'Oh, you have lots of lovely songs that nobody in the Glen ever heard before,' said Rilla, who knew Irene had been going to town all winter for lessons, and that this was only a pretext. "'They will all be new down there.' "'But I have no accompanist,' protested Irene. "'Una Meredith can accompany you,' said Rilla. "'Oh, I couldn't ask her.' sighed Irene. We haven't spoken since last fall. She was so hateful to me the time of our Sunday-school concert that I simply had to give her up. Dear, dear, was Irene at feud with everybody? As for Una Meredith being hateful to anybody, the idea was so farcical that Rilla had much ado to keep from laughing in Irene's very face. "'Miss Oliver is a beautiful pianist, and can play any accompaniment at sight,' said Rilla, desperate. "'She will play for you, and you could run over your songs easily tomorrow evening at Ingleside before the concert.' "'But I haven't anything to wear. My new evening dress isn't home from Charlottetown yet, and I simply cannot wear my old one at such a big affair. It is too shabby and old-fashioned.' "'Our concert,' said Rilla slowly, "'is in aid of Belgian children who are starving to death. 
"'Don't you think you could wear a shabby dress once for their sake, Irene?' "'Oh, don't you think those accounts we get of the conditions of the Belgians are very much exaggerated?' said Irene. "'I'm sure they can't be actually starving, you know, in the twentieth century. The newspapers always colour things so highly.' Rilla concluded that she had humiliated herself enough. There was such a thing as self-respect. No more coaxing, concert or no concert. She got up, boot and all. "'I am sorry you can't help us, Irene, but since you cannot we must do the best we can.' Now this did not suit Irene at all. She desired exceedingly to sing at that concert, and all her hesitations were merely by way of enhancing the boon of her final consent. Besides, she really wanted to be friends with Rilla again. Rilla's whole-hearted, ungrudging adoration had been very sweet incense to her, and Ingleside was a very charming house to visit, especially when a handsome college student like Walter was home. She stopped looking at Rilla's feet. "'Rilla, darling, don't be so abrupt. I really want to help you if I can manage it. Just sit down and let's talk it over.' "'I'm sorry, but I can't. I have to be home soon. Jim's has to be settled for the night, you know.' "'Oh, yes. The baby you are bringing up by the book. It's perfectly sweet of you to do it when you hate children so. How cross you were just because I kissed him. But we'll forget all that and be chums again, won't we? Now about the concert. I dare say I can run into town on the morning train after my dress, and out again on the afternoon one in plenty of time for the concert, if you'll ask Miss Oliver to play for me.' I couldn't. She's so dreadfully haughty and supercilious that she simply paralyzes poor little me." Rilla did not waste time or breath defending Miss Oliver. She coolly thanked Irene, who had suddenly become very amiable and gushing, and got away. She was very thankful the interview was over, but she knew now that she and Irene could never be the friends they had been. Friendly, yes, but friends, no. Nor did she wish it. All winter she had felt under her other and more serious worries a little feeling of regret for her lost chum. Now it was suddenly gone. Irene was not, as Mrs. Elliot would say, of the race that knew Joseph. Rilla did not say or think that she had outgrown Irene. Had the thought occurred to her, she would have considered it absurd when she was not yet seventeen, and Irene was twenty. But it was the truth. Irene was just what she had been a year ago, just what she would always be. Rilla Blythe's nature in that year had changed and matured and deepened. She found herself seeing through Irene with a disconcerting clearness discerning under all her superficial sweetness her pettiness, her vindictiveness, her insincerity, her essential cheapness. Irene had lost for ever her faithful worshipper. But not until Rilla had traversed the Upper Glen Road and found herself in the moon-dappled solitude of Rainbow Valley did she fully recover her composure of spirit. Then she stopped under a tall, wild plum that was ghostly white and fair in its misty spring bloom, and laughed. There is only one thing of importance just now and that is that the Allies win the war," she said aloud. Therefore it follows, without dispute, that the fact that I went to see Irene Howard with odd shoes and stockings on is of no importance whatever. Nevertheless, I, Bertha Marilla Blythe, swear solemnly with the moon as witness—Rilla lifted her hand dramatically to the said moon—that I will never leave my room again without looking carefully at both my feet. End of chapter 13「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラの日記」「ゴリラ And not before it was time, Mrs. Dr. dear, considering the way things have begun to go on the Russian front. Say what you will, those Russians are kittle-cattle, the Grand Duke Nicholas to the contrary notwithstanding. 
It is a fortunate thing for Italy that she has come in on the right side. But whether it is as fortunate for the Allies, I will not predict until I know more about Italians than I do now. However, she will give that old reprobate of Francis Joseph something to think about. A pretty emperor, indeed, with one foot in the grave and yet plotting wholesale murder. And Susan thumped and kneaded her bread with as much vicious energy as she could have expended in punching Francis Joseph himself, if he had been so unlucky as to fall into her clutches. Walter had gone to town on the early train, and Nan offered to look after Jim's for the day, and so set Rilla free. Rilla was wildly busy all day, helping to decorate the Glen Hall and seeing to a hundred last things. The evening was beautiful, in spite of the fact that Mr. Pryor was reported to have said that he hoped it would rain pitchforks points down, and to have wantonly kicked Miranda's dog as he said it. Rilla, rushing home from the hall, dressed hurriedly. Everything had gone surprisingly well at the last. Irene was even then downstairs practicing her songs with Miss Oliver. Rilla was excited and happy, forgetful even of the western front for the moment. It gave her a sense of achievement and victory to have brought her efforts of weeks to such a successful conclusion. She knew that there had not lacked people who thought and hinted that Rilla Blythe had not the tact or patience to engineer a concert program. She had shown them. Little snatches of song bubbled up from her lips as she dressed. She thought she was looking very well. Excitement brought a faint, becoming pink into her round, creamy cheeks, quite drowning out her few freckles, and her hair gleamed with red-brown lustre. Should she wear crab-apple blossoms in it, or her little fillet of pearls? After some agonized wavering, she decided on the crab-apple blossoms, and tucked the white waxen cluster behind her left ear. Now for a final look at her feet. Yes, both slippers were on. She gave the sleeping Jims a kiss—what a dear little warm, rosy, satin face he had—and hurried down the hill to the hall. Already it was filling. Soon it was crowded. Her concert was going to be a brilliant success. The first three numbers were successfully over. Rilla was in the little dressing-room behind the platform, looking out on the moonlit harbour and rehearsing her own recitations. She was alone, the rest of the performers being in the larger room on the other side. Suddenly she felt two soft, bare arms slipping around her waist. Then Irene Howard dropped a light kiss on her cheek. "'Rilla, you sweet thing, you're looking simply angelic tonight. You have spunk. I thought you would feel so badly over Walter's enlisting that you'd hardly be able to bear up at all. And here you are, as cool as a cucumber. I wish I had half your nerve.' Rilla stood perfectly still. She felt no emotion whatever. She felt nothing. The world of feeling had just gone blank. "'Walter, enlisting,' she heard herself saying. Then she heard Irene's affected little laugh. "'Why didn't you know? I thought you did, of course, or I wouldn't have mentioned it. I am always putting my foot in it, aren't I? Yes, that is what he went to town for today. He told me coming out on the train tonight. I was the first person he told.' He isn't in khaki yet. They were out of uniforms, but he will be in a day or two. I always said Walter had as much pluck as anybody. I assure you I felt proud of him, Rilla, when he told me what he'd done. Oh, there's an end of Rick McAllister's reading. I must fly. I promised I'd play for the next chorus. Alice Clow has such a headache. She was gone. Oh, thank God she was gone. Rilla was alone again, staring out at the unchanged dream-like beauty of moonlit four winds. Feeling was coming back to her. A pang of agony so acute as to be almost physical seemed to rend her apart. "'I cannot bear it,' she said. And then came the awful thought that perhaps she could bear it, and that there might be years of this hideous suffering before her. She must get away. She must rush home. She must be alone. She could not go out there and play for drills and give readings and take part in dialogues now. It would spoil half the concert, but that did not matter. Nothing mattered. Was this she, Rilla Blythe, this tortured thing who had been quite happy a few minutes ago? Outside a quartet was singing, We'll Never Let the Old Flag Fall. The music seemed to be coming from some remote distance. 
Why couldn't she cry, as she had cried when Jem told them he must go? If she could cry, perhaps this horrible something that seemed to have seized on her very life might let go. But no tears came. Where were her scarf and coat? She must get away and hide herself like an animal hurt to the death. Was it a coward's part to run away like this? The question came to her suddenly as if someone else had asked it. She thought of the shambles of the Flanders front. She thought of her brother and her playmate helping to hold those fire swept trenches. What would they think of her if she shirked her little duty here, the humble duty of carrying the program through for her Red Cross? But she couldn't stay, she couldn't. Yet what was it Mother had said when Jem went? When our women fail in courage, shall our men be fearless still? But this, this was unbearable. Still, she stopped halfway to the door and went back to the window. Irene was singing now. Her beautiful voice, the only real thing about her, soared clear and sweet through the building. Rilla knew that the girl's fairy drill came next. Could she go out there and play for it? Her head was aching now. Her throat was burning. Oh, why had Irene told her just then, when telling could do no good? Irene had been very cruel. Rilla remembered now that more than once that day she had caught her mother looking at her with an odd expression. She had been too busy to wonder what it meant. She understood now. Mother had known why Walter went to town, but wouldn't tell her until the concert was over. What spirit and endurance Mother had! "'I must stay here and see things through,' said Rilla, clasping her cold hands together. The rest of the evening always seemed like a fevered dream to her. Her body was crowded by people, but her soul was alone in a torture chamber of its own. Yet she played steadily for the drills and gave her readings without faltering. She even put on a grotesque old Irishwoman's costume and acted the part in the dialogue which Miranda Pryor had not taken. But she did not give her brogue the inimitable twist she had given it in the practices, and her readings lacked their usual fire and appeal. As she stood before the audience she saw one face only, that of the handsome, dark-haired lad sitting beside her mother. And she saw that same face in the trenches, saw it lying cold and dead under the stars, saw it pining in prison, saw the light of its eyes blotted out saw a hundred horrible things as she stood there on the beflagged platform of the Glen Hall, with her own face whiter than the milky crab-blossoms in her hair. Between her numbers she walked restlessly up and down the little dressing-room. Would the concert never end? It ended at last. Olive Kirk rushed up and told her exultantly that they had made a hundred dollars. "'That's good,' Rilla said mechanically. Then she was away from them all. Oh, thank God she was away from them all. Walter was waiting for her at the door. He put his arm through her silently, and they went together down the moonlit road. The frogs were singing in the marshes, the dim and silvered fields of home lay all around them. The spring night was lovely and appealing. Rilla felt that its beauty was an insult to her pain. She would hate moonlight forever. "'You know?' said Walter. "'Yes. Irene told me,' answered Rilla chokingly. "'We didn't want you to know until the evening was over. I knew when you came out for the drill that you had heard.' "'Little sister, I had to do it. I couldn't live any longer on such terms with myself as I have been since the Lusitania was sunk. When I pictured those dead women and children floating about in that pitiless, ice-cold water—well, at first I just felt a sort of nausea with life. I wanted to get out of the world where such a thing could happen, shake its accursed dust from my feet forever. Then I knew I had to go. There are plenty without you. That isn't the point, Rilla, my Rilla. I'm going for my own sake.' to save my soul alive. It will shrink to something small and mean and lifeless if I don't go. That would be worse than blindness or mutilation or any of the things I've feared. You may be killed." Rilla hated herself for saying it. She knew it was a weak and cowardly thing to say, 
but she had rather gone to pieces after the tension of the evening. "'Comes he slow or comes he fast? It is but death who comes at last,' quoted Walter. "'It's not death, I fear. I told you that long ago. One can pay too high a price for mere life, little sister. There's so much hideousness in this war. I've got to go and help wipe it out of the world. I'm going to fight for the beauty of life, Rilla my Rilla. That is my duty. There may be a higher duty, perhaps, but that is mine. I owe life and Canada that, and I've got to pay it. Rilla, tonight, for the first time since Jem left, I've got back my self-respect. I could write poetry, Walter laughed. I've never been able to write a line since late August. Tonight I'm full of it. Little sister, be brave. You were so plucky when Jem left. This is different. Rilla had to stop after every word to fight down a wild outburst of sobs. I loved Jem, of course, but when he went away, we thought the war would soon be over, and you are everything to me, Walter. You must be brave to help me, Rilla, my Rilla. I'm exalted tonight, drunk with the excitement of victory over myself. But there will be other times when it won't be like this. I'll need your help then. When do you go? She must know the worst at once. Not for a week. Then we go to Kingsport for training. I suppose we'll go overseas about the middle of July. We don't know. One week. Only one week more with Walter. The eyes of youth did not see how she was to go on living. When they turned in at the Ingleside gate, Walter stopped in the shadows of the old pines and drew Rilla close to him. Rilla, my Rilla, there were girls as sweet and pure as you in Belgium and Flanders. You, even you, know what their fate was. We must make it impossible for such things to happen again while the world lasts. You'll help me, won't you? I'll try, Walter, she said. Oh, I will try. As she clung to him with her face pressed against his shoulder, she knew that it had to be. She accepted the fact then and there. He must go. Her beautiful Walter with his beautiful soul and dreams and ideals. And she had known all along that it would come sooner or later. She had seen it coming to her. Coming. Coming. As one sees the shadow of a cloud drawing near over a sunny field, swiftly and inescapably. Amid all her pain she was conscious of an odd feeling of relief in some hidden part of her soul, where a little, dull, unacknowledged soreness had been lurking all winter. No one— no one could ever call Walter a slacker now. Rilla did not sleep that night. Perhaps no one at Ingleside did except Jim's. The body grows slowly and steadily, but the soul grows by leaps and bounds. It may come to its full stature in an hour. From that night Rilla Blythe's soul was the soul of a woman in its capacity for suffering, for strength, for endurance. When the bitter dawn came she rose and went to her window. Below her was a big apple-tree, a great swelling cone of rosy blossom. Walter had planted it years ago when he was a little boy. Beyond Rainbow Valley there was a cloudy shore of morning with little ripples of sunrise breaking over it. The far, cold beauty of a lingering star shone above it. Why, in this world of springtime loveliness, must hearts break? Rilla felt arms go about her lovingly, protectingly. It was Mother, pale, large-eyed Mother. "'Oh, Mother, how can you bear it?' she cried wildly. "'Rilla, dear!' I've known for several days that Walter meant to go. I've had time to—to to rebel and grow reconciled. We must give him up. There is a call greater and more insistent than the call of our love. He has listened to it. We must not add to the bitterness of his sacrifice. Our sacrifice is greater than his, cried Rilla passionately. Our boys give only themselves. We give them. 
Before Mrs. Blythe could reply, Susan stuck her head in at the door, never troubling over such frills of etiquette as knocking. Her eyes were suspiciously red, but all she said was, "'Will I bring up your breakfast, Mrs. Dr. Dear?' "'No, no, Susan. We will all be down presently. Do you know—that Walter is joined up?' "'Yes, Mrs. Dr. Dear. The doctor told me last night. I suppose the Almighty has his own reasons for allowing such things. We must submit and endeavour to look on the bright side. It may cure him of being a poet, at least.' Susan still persisted in thinking that poets and tramps were tarred with the same brush. And that would be something. But thank God, she muttered in a lower tone, that Shirley is not old enough to go. "'Isn't that the same thing as thanking him that some other woman's son has to go in Shirley's place?' asked the doctor, pausing on the threshold. "'No, it is not, doctor, dear,' said Susan defiantly, as she picked up Jim's, who was opening his big dark eyes and stretching up his dimpled paws. "'Do not you put words in my mouth that I would never dream of uttering.' I am a plain woman, and cannot argue with you, but I do not thank God that anybody has to go. I only know that it seems they do have to go, unless we all want to be kaiserized. For I can assure you that the Monroe Doctrine, whatever it is, is nothing to tie to, with Woodrow Wilson behind it. The Huns, Dr. Dear, will never be brought to Brook by notes. And now, concluded Susan, tucking Jims in the crook of her gaunt arms and marching downstairs, having cried my cry and said my say— I shall take a brace, and if I cannot look pleasant, I will look as pleasant as I can. End of chapter 14「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, June 2006. Rilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 15 until the daybreak. "'The Germans have recaptured Primusel,' said Susan despairingly, looking up from her newspaper. "'And now I suppose we will have to begin calling it by that uncivilized name again.' Cousin Sophia was in when the mail came, and when she heard the news she hove a sigh up from the depths of her stomach, Mrs. Dr. Dear, and said, "'Ah, yes, and they will get Petrograd next, I have no doubt.' I said to her, "'My knowledge of geography is not so profound as I wish it was, but I have an idea that it is quite a walk from Premisel to Petrograd.' Cousin Sophia sighed again, and said, "'The Grand Duke Nicholas is not the man I took him to be.' "'Do not let him know that,' said I. "'It might hurt his feelings, and he is likely enough to worry him as it is.' "'But you cannot cheer Cousin Sophia up, no matter how sarcastic you are, Mrs. Dr. Dear.' She sighed for the third time, and groaned out, "'But the Russians are retreating fast,' and I said, "'Well, what of it?' They have plenty of room for retreating, have they not? But all the same, Mrs. Dr. Dear, though I would never admit it to Cousin Sophia, I do not like the situation on the Eastern Front. Nobody else liked it either, but all summer the Russian retreat went on, a long, drawn-out agony. I wonder if I shall ever again be able to await the coming of the mail with feelings of composure, never to speak of pleasure, said Gertrude Oliver. The thought that haunts me night and day is— Will the Germans smash Russia completely, and then hurl their eastern army, flushed with victory against the western front? They will not, Miss Oliver, dear," said Susan, assuming the role of prophetess. In the first place, the Almighty will not allow it. In the second, Grand Duke Nicholas, though he may have been a disappointment to us in some respects, knows how to run away decently and in order, and that is a very useful knowledge when Germans are chasing you. Norman Douglas declares he is just luring them on and killing ten of them to one he loses. But I am of the opinion he cannot help himself, and is just doing the best he can under the circumstances, the same as the rest of us. So do not go so far afield to borrow trouble, Miss Oliver, dear, when there is plenty of it already camping on our very doorstep." Walter had gone to Kingsport the first of June. 
Nan, Di, and Faith had gone also to do Red Cross work in their vacation. In mid-July, Walter came home for a week's leave before going overseas. Rilla had lived through the days of his absence on the hope of that week, and now that it had come she drank every minute of it thirstily, hating even the hours she had to spend in sleep. They seemed such a waste of precious moments. In spite of its sadness, it was a beautiful week, full of poignant, unforgettable hours, when she and Walter had long walks and talks and silences together. He was all her own, and she knew that he found strength and comfort in her sympathy and understanding. It was very wonderful to know she meant so much to him. The knowledge helped her through moments that would otherwise have been unendurable, and gave her power to smile, and even to laugh a little. When Walter had gone she might indulge in the comfort of tears, but not while he was here. She would not even let herself cry at night, lest her eyes should betray her to him in the morning. On his last evening at home they went together to Rainbow Valley, and sat down on the bank of the brook under the White Lady, where the gay revels of olden days had been held in the cloudless years. Rainbow Valley was roofed over with a sunset of unusual splendour that night. A wonderful grey dusk, just touched with starlight, followed it. And then came moonshine, hinting, hiding, revealing, lighting up little dells and hollows here, leaving others in dark, velvet shadow. "'When I am somewhere in France,' said Walter, looking around him with eager eyes on all the beauty his soul loved, "'I shall remember these still, dewy, moon-drenched places—the balsam of the fir-trees, the peace of those white pools of moonshine, the strength of the hills—what a beautiful old biblical phrase that is! Rilla, look at those old hills around us—the hills we looked up at as children, wondering what lay for us in the great world beyond them. How calm and strong they are, how patient and changeless, like the heart of a good woman. Rilla, my Rilla, do you know what you have been to me the past year? I want to tell you before I go. I could not have lived through it if it had not been for you, little, loving, believing heart." Rilla dared not try to speak. She slipped her hand into Walter's and pressed it hard. "'And when I'm over there, Rilla, in that hell upon earth which men who have forgotten God have made, it will be the thought of you that will help me most. I know you'll be as plucky and patient as you have shown yourself to be this past year. I'm not afraid for you. I know that no matter what happens, you'll be Rilla, my Rilla, no matter what happens.' Rilla repressed tear and sigh, but she could not repress a little shiver, and Walter knew that he had said enough. After a moment of silence, in which each made an unworded promise to each other, he said, "'Now we won't be sober any more. We'll look beyond the years, to the time when the war will be over, and Jem and Jerry and I will come marching home, and we'll all be happy again.' "'We won't be happy in the same way,' said Rilla. "'No, not in the same way. Nobody whom this war has touched will ever be happy again in quite the same way. But it will be a better happiness, I think, little sister—a happiness we've earned.' We were very happy before the war, weren't we? With a home like Ingleside, and a father and mother like ours, we couldn't help being happy. But that happiness was a gift from life and love. It wasn't really ours. Life could take it back at any time. It can never take away the happiness we win for ourselves in the way of duty. I've realized that since I went into khaki. In spite of my occasional funks, when I fall to living over things beforehand, I've been happy since that night in May. Rilla, be awfully good to mother while I'm away. It must be a horrible thing to be a mother in this war. The mothers and sisters and wives and sweethearts have the hardest times. Rilla, you beautiful little thing, are you anybody's sweetheart? If you are, tell me before I go." No, said Rilla. Then, impelled by a wish to be absolutely frank with Walter in this talk that might be the last they would ever have, she added, blushing wildly in the moonlight, But if Kenneth Ford wanted me to be—I see, said Walter, and Ken's in khaki, too. Poor little girlie! 
It's a bit hard for you all round. Well, I'm not leaving any girl to break her heart about me. Thank God for that. Rilla glanced up at the manse on the hill. She could see a light in Una Meredith's window. She felt tempted to say something, but she knew she must not. It was not her secret. And anyway, she did not know. She only suspected. Walter looked about him lingeringly and lovingly. This spot had always been so dear to him. What fun they all had had here, Lang Syne! Phantoms of memory seemed to pace the dappled paths and peep merrily through the swinging boughs. Jem and Jerry, bare-legged, sunburned schoolboys, fishing in the brook and frying trout over the old stone fireplace. Nan and Di and Faith in their dimpled, fresh-eyed, childish beauty. Una, the sweet and shy. Carl poring over ants and bugs. Little slangy, sharp-tongued, good-hearted Mary Vance. The old Walter that had been himself lying on the grass reading poetry or wandering through palaces of fancy. They were all there around him. He could see them almost as plainly as he saw Rilla, as plainly as he had once seen the Pied Piper piping down the valley in a vanishing twilight. And they said to him, those gay little ghosts of other days, "We were the children of yesterday, Walter. Fight a good fight for the children of today and tomorrow." Where are you, Walter? cried Rilla, laughing a little. Come back, come back. Walter came back with a long breath. He stood up and looked about him at the beautiful valley of moonlight, as if to impress on his mind and heart every charm it possessed. The great dark plumes of the firs against the silvery sky, the stately white lady, the old magic of the dancing brook, the faithful tree lovers, the beckoning tricksy paths. I shall see it so in my dreams," he said as he turned away. They went back to Ingleside. Mr. and Mrs. Meredith were there with Gertrude Oliver, who had come from Lowbridge to say goodbye. Everybody was quite cheerful and bright, but nobody said much about the war being soon over, as they had said when Jem went away. They did not talk about the war at all. And they thought of nothing else. At last, they gathered around the piano and sang the grand old hymn. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy past, and our eternal home. We all come back to God in these days of soul sifting," said Gertrude to John Meredith. "There have been many days in the past when I didn't believe in God, not as God, only as the impersonal great first cause of the scientists. I believe in Him now. I have to. There's nothing else to fall back on but God, humbly, starkly, unconditionally. Our help in ages past, the same yesterday, today, and forever," said the minister gently. "When we forget God, He remembers us." There was no crowd at the Glen station the next morning to see Walter off. It was becoming commonplace for a khaki-clad boy to board that early morning train after his last leave. Besides his own, only the manse folk were there and Mary Vance. Mary had sent her miller off the week before with a determined grin, and now considered herself entitled to give expert opinion on how such partings should be conducted. The main thing is to smile and act as if nothing was happening," she informed the Ingleside group. The boys all hate the sob act like poison. Miller told me I wasn't to come near the station if I couldn't keep from bawling. So I got through with my crying beforehand, and at the last I said to him, "Good luck, Miller. And if you come back, you'll find I haven't changed any. And if you don't come back, I'll always be proud you went. And in any case, don't fall in love with a French girl." Miller swore he wouldn't, but you never can tell about those fascinating foreign hussies. Anyhow, the last sight he had of me, I was smiling to my limit. Gee, all the rest of the day, my face felt as if it had been starched and ironed into a smile. In spite of Mary's advice and example, Mrs. Blythe, who had sent Jem off with a smile, could not quite manage one for Walter. But at least no one cried. 
Dog Monday came out of his lair in the shipping shed and sat down close to Walter, thumping his tail vigorously on the boards of the platform whenever Walter spoke to him, and looking up with confident eyes as if to say, I know you'll find Jem and bring him back to me. So long, old fellow, said Carl Meredith cheerfully, when the goodbyes had to be said. Tell them over there to keep their spirits up. I'm coming along presently. Me too, said Shirley laconically, preferring a brown paw. Susan heard him, and her face turned very grey. Una shook hands quietly, looking at him with wistful, sorrowful, dark blue eyes. But then Una's eyes had always been wistful. Walter bent his handsome black head in its khaki cap and kissed her with the warm, comradely kiss of a brother. He had never kissed her before, and for a fleeting moment Una's face betrayed her if anyone had noticed. But nobody did. The conductor was shouting all aboard. Everybody was trying to look very cheerful. Walter turned to Rilla. She held his hands and looked up at him. She would not see him again until the day broke and the shadows vanished. And she knew not if that daybreak would be on this side of the grave or beyond it. Goodbye, she said. On her lips it lost all the bitterness it had won through the ages of parting, and bore instead all the sweetness of the old loves of all the women who had ever loved and prayed for the beloved. Write me often, and bring Jims up faithfully according to the Gospel of Morgan, Walter said lightly, having said all his serious things the night before in Rainbow Valley. But at the last moment he took her face between his hands and looked deep into her gallant eyes. God bless you, Rilla, my Rilla. He said softly and tenderly. After all, it was not a hard thing to fight for a land that bore daughters like this. He stood on the rear platform and waved to them as the train pulled out. Rilla was standing by herself, but Una Meredith came to her, and the two girls who loved him most stood together and held each other's cold hands as the train rounded the curve of the wooded hill. Rilla spent an hour in Rainbow Valley that morning, about which she never said a word to anyone. She did not even write in her diary about it. When it was over, she went home and made rompers for Jims. In the evening, she went to a junior Red Cross committee meeting and was severely businesslike. You would never suppose, said Irene Howard to Olive Kirk afterwards, that Walter had left for the front only this morning. But some people really have no depth of feeling. I often wish I could take things as lightly as Rilla Blythe. End of chapter 15. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, July 2006. Rilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 16 Realism and Romance. Warsaw has fallen, said Dr. Blythe with a resigned air as he brought the mail in one warm August day. Gertrude and Mrs. Blythe looked dismally at each other, and Rilla, who was feeding Jims a morganized diet from a carefully sterilized spoon, laid the said spoon down on his tray utterly regardless of germs, and said, "'Oh, dear me!' in as tragic a tone as if the news had come as a thunderbolt instead of being a foregone conclusion from the preceding week's dispatches. They had thought they were quite resigned to Warsaw's fall, but now they knew they had, as always, hoped against hope. "'Now let us take a brace,' said Susan. "'It is not the terrible thing we have been thinking.' I read a dispatch three columns long in the Montreal Herald yesterday that proved that Warsaw was not important from a military point of view at all. So let us take the military point of view, Dr. dear. I read that dispatch, too, and it has encouraged me immensely," said Gertrude. I knew then, and I knew now, that it was a lie from beginning to end. But I am in that state of mind where even a lie is a comfort, providing it is a cheerful lie. In that case, Miss Oliver, dear, the German official reports ought to be all you need," said Susan sarcastically. I never read them now, because they make me so mad I cannot put my thoughts properly on my work after a dose of them. Even this news about Warsaw has taken the edge off my afternoon's plans. Misfortunes never come singly. I spoiled my baking of bread today, and now Warsaw has fallen, and here is little Kitchener bent on choking himself to death. 
Jims was evidently trying to swallow his spoon, germs and all. Rilla rescued him mechanically and was about to resume the operation of feeding him when a casual remark of her father's sent such a shock and thrill over her that for the second time she dropped that doomed spoon. Kenneth Ford is down at Martin West's over harbour, the doctor was saying. His regiment was on its way to the front but was held up in Kingsport for some reason, and Ken got leave of absence to come over to the island. I hope he will come up to see us, exclaimed Mrs. Blythe. He only has a day or two off, I believe, said the doctor absently. Nobody noticed Rilla's flushed face and trembling hands. Even the most thoughtful and watchful of parents do not see everything that goes on under their very noses. Rilla made a third attempt to give the long-suffering Jims his dinner, but all she could think of was the question, would Ken come to see her before he went away? She had not heard from him for a long while. Had he forgotten her completely? If he did not come, she would know that he had. Perhaps there was even some other girl back there in Toronto. Of course there was. She was a little fool to be thinking about him at all. She would not think about him. If he came, well and good. It would only be courteous of him to make a farewell call at Ingleside, where he had often been a guest. If he did not come, well and good, too. It did not matter very much. Nobody was going to fret. That was all settled comfortably. She was quite indifferent. But meanwhile Jims was being fed with a haste and recklessness that would have filled the soul of Morgan with horror. Jims himself didn't like it, being a methodical baby accustomed to swallowing spoonfuls with a decent interval for breath between each. He protested, but his protests availed him nothing. Rilla, as far as the care and feeding of infants was concerned, was utterly demoralized. Then the telephone bell rang. There was nothing unusual about the telephone ringing. It rang on an average every ten minutes at Ingleside. But Rilla dropped Jim's spoon again—on the carpet this time—and flew to the phone as if life depended on her getting there before anybody else. Jim's, his patience exhausted, lifted up his voice and wept. "'Hello, is this Ingleside?' "'Yes.' "'That you, Rilla?' "'Yes, yes!' Oh, why couldn't Jim stop howling for just one little minute? Why didn't somebody come in and choke him? Know who's speaking? Oh, didn't she know? Wouldn't she know that voice anywhere, at any time? It's Ken, isn't it? Sure thing. I'm here for a look-in. Can I come up to Ingleside tonight and see you? Of course. Had he used you in the singular or plural sense? Presently she would wring Jim's neck. Oh, what was Ken saying? See here, Rilla. Can you arrange that there won't be more than a few dozen people around? Understand? I can't make my meaning clearer over this bally rural line. There are a dozen receivers down. Did she understand? Yes, she understood. I'll try, she said. I'll be up about eight, then. Bye-bye. Rilla hung up the phone and flew to Jim's. But she did not wring that injured infant's neck. Instead, she snatched him bodily out of his chair, crushed him against her face, kissed him rapturously on his milky mouth, and danced wildly around the room with him in her arms. After this, Jims was relieved to find that she returned to sanity, gave him the rest of his dinner properly, and tucked him away for his afternoon nap with the little lullaby he loved best of all. She sewed at Red Cross shirts for the rest of the afternoon, and built a crystal castle of dreams, all a-quiver with rainbows. Ken wanted to see her—to see her alone. That could be easily managed. Shirley wouldn't bother them. Father and mother were going to the manse, Miss Oliver never played gooseberry, and Jims always slept the clock round from seven to seven. She would entertain Ken on the veranda. It would be moonlight. She would wear her white georgette dress and do her hair up. Yes, she would. At least in a low knot at the nape of her neck. Mother couldn't object to that, surely. Oh, how wonderful and romantic it would be! Would Ken say anything? He must mean to say something, or why should he be so particular about seeing her alone? What if it rained? Susan had been complaining about Mr. Hyde that morning. What if some officious junior red called to discuss Belgians and shirts? Or, worst of all, what if Fred Arnold dropped in? He did occasionally. The evening came at last, and was all that could be desired in an evening. 
The doctor and his wife went to the manse. Shirley and Miss Oliver went they alone knew where. Susan went to the store for household supplies, and Jims went to Dreamland. Rilla put on her Georgette gown, knotted up her hair, and bound a little double string of pearls around it. Then she tucked a cluster of pale pink baby roses at her belt. Would Ken ask her for a rose for a keepsake? She knew that Jem had carried to the trenches in Flanders a faded rose that Faith Meredith had kissed and given him the night before he left. Rilla looked very sweet when she met Ken in the mingled moonlight and vine shadows of the big veranda. The hand she gave him was cold, and she was so desperately anxious not to lisp that her greeting was prim and precise. How handsome and tall Kenneth looked in his lieutenant's uniform! It made him seem older, too, so much so that Rilla felt rather foolish. Hadn't it been the height of absurdity for her to suppose that this splendid young officer had anything special to say to her, little Rilla Blythe of Glen St. Mary? Likely she hadn't understood him after all. He had only meant that he didn't want a mob of folks around making a fuss over him and trying to lionize him, as they had probably done over harbour. Yes, of course, that was all he meant. And she, little idiot, had gone and vainly imagined that he didn't want anybody but her. And he would think she had manoeuvred everybody away so that they could be alone together, and he would laugh to himself at her. "'This is better luck than I hoped for.' said Ken, leaning back in his chair and looking at her with very unconcealed admiration in his eloquent eyes. I was sure someone would be hanging about, and it was just you I wanted to see, Rilla my Rilla. Rilla's dream-castle flashed into the landscape again. This was unmistakable enough, certainly. Not much doubt as to his meaning here. There aren't so many of us to poke around as there used to be, she said softly. No, that's so, said Ken gently. Jem and Walter and the girls away. It makes a big blank, doesn't it? But—he leaned forward until his dark curls almost brushed her hair—doesn't Fred Arnold try to fill the blank occasionally? I have been told so. At this moment, before Rilla could make any reply, Jims began to cry at the top of his voice in the room whose open window was just above them—Jims, who hardly ever cried in the evening. Moreover, he was crying, as Rilla knew from experience, with a vim and energy that betokened that he had already been whimpering softly unheard for some time, and was thoroughly exasperated. When Jim started in crying like that, he made a thorough job of it. Rilla knew that there was no use to sit still and pretend to ignore him. He wouldn't stop, and conversation of any kind was out of the question when such shrieks and howls were floating over your head. Besides, she was afraid Kenneth would think she was utterly unfeeling if she sat still and let a baby cry like that. He was not likely acquainted with Morgan's invaluable volume. She got up. Jim's has had a nightmare, I think. He sometimes has one, and he is always badly frightened by it. Excuse me for a moment. Rilla flew upstairs, wishing quite frankly that soup tureens had never been invented. But when Jims, at the sight of her, lifted his little arms entreatingly and swallowed several sobs, with tears rolling down his cheeks, resentment went out of her heart. After all, the poor darling was frightened. She picked him up gently and rocked him soothingly until his sobs ceased and his eyes closed. Then she essayed to lay him down in his crib. Jims opened his eyes and shrieked a protest. This performance was repeated twice. Rilla grew desperate. She couldn't leave Ken down there alone any longer. She had been away nearly half an hour already. With a resigned air she marched downstairs, carrying Jims, and sat down on the veranda. It was no doubt a ridiculous thing to sit and cuddle a contrary war-baby when your best young man was making his farewell call. But there was nothing else to be done. Jims was supremely happy. He kicked his little pink-soled feet rapturously out under his white nightie and gave one of his rare laughs. He was beginning to be a very pretty baby. His golden hair curled in silken ringlets all over his little round head, and his eyes were beautiful. "'He's a decorative kitty, all right, isn't he?' said Ken. "'His looks are all very well,' said Rilla bitterly, as if to imply that they were much the best of him. Jims, being an astute infant, sensed trouble in the atmosphere, and realized that it was up to him to clear it away. 
He turned his face up to Rilla, smiled adorably, and said clearly and beguilingly, "'Well, well!' It was the very first time he had spoken a word or tried to speak. Rilla was so delighted that she forgot her grudge against him. She forgave him with a hug and a kiss. Jim's understanding that he was restored to favour cuddled down against her just where a gleam of light from the lamp in the living-room struck across his hair, and turned it into a halo of gold against her breast. Kenneth sat very still and silent, looking at Rilla, at the delicate girlish silhouette of her, her long lashes, her dented lip, her adorable chin. In the dim moonlight, as she sat with her head bent a little over Jim's, the lamplight glinting on her pearls until they glistened like a slender nimbus, he thought she looked exactly like the Madonna that hung over his mother's desk at home. He carried that picture of her in his heart to the horror of the battlefields of France. He had had a strong fancy for Rilla ever since the night of the Four Winds dance. But it was when he saw her there, with little Jims in her arms, that he loved her and realized it. And all the while poor Rilla was sitting disappointed and humiliated, feeling that her last evening with Ken was spoiled, and wondering why things always had to go so contrarily outside of books. She felt too absurd to try to talk. Evidently Ken was completely disgusted, too, since he was sitting there in such stony silence. Hope revived momentarily when Jims went so thoroughly asleep that she thought it would be safe to lay him down on the couch in the living-room. But when she came out again, Susan was sitting on the veranda, loosening her bonnet-strings with the air of one who meant to stay where she was for some time. "'Have you got your baby to sleep?' she asked kindly. "'Your baby. Really. Susan might have more tact.' "'Yes,' said Rilla shortly. Susan laid her parcels on the reed-table, as one determined to do her duty. She was very tired, but she must help Rilla out. Here was Kenneth Ford, who had come to call on the family, and they were all unfortunately out, and the poor child had had to entertain him alone. But Susan had come to her rescue. Susan would do her part, no matter how tired she was. "'Dear me, how you have grown up,' she said, looking at Ken's six feet of khaki uniform without the least awe. Susan had grown used to khaki now, and at sixty-four even a lieutenant's uniform was just clothes and nothing else. It is an amazing thing how fast children do grow up. Rilla here now is almost fifteen. "'I'm going on seventeen, Susan,' cried Rilla almost passionately. She was a whole month past sixteen. It was intolerable of Susan. "'It seems just the other day that you were all babies,' said Susan, ignoring Rilla's protest. "'You were really the prettiest baby I ever saw, Ken, though your mother had an awful time trying to cure you of sucking your thumb. Do you remember the day I spanked you?' "'No,' said Ken. "'Oh, well, I suppose you would be too young. You were only about four, and you were here with your mother, and you insisted on teasing Nan until she cried. I had tried several ways of stopping you, but none availed, and I saw that a spanking was the only thing that would serve. So I picked you up and laid you across my knee and lambasted you well.' You howled at the top of your voice, but you left Nan alone after that. Rilla was writhing. Hadn't Susan any realization that she was addressing an officer of the Canadian Army? Apparently she had not. Oh, what would Ken think? I suppose you do not remember the time your mother spanked you, either, continued Susan, who seemed to be bent on reviving tender reminiscences that evening. I shall never, no, never forget it. She was up here one night with you when you were about three, and you and Walter were playing out in the kitchen yard with a kitten. I had a big puncheon of rainwater by the spout, which I was reserving for making soap, and you and Walter began quarrelling over the kitten. Walter was at one side of the puncheon, standing on a chair, holding the kitten, and you were standing on a chair at the other side. You leaned across that puncheon, grabbed the kitten, and pulled. You were always a great hand for taking what you wanted without too much ceremony. Walter held on tight, and the poor kitten yelled, but you dragged Walter and the kitten half over, and then you both lost your balance and tumbled into that puncheon, kitten and all. If I had not been on the spot, you would both have been drowned. I flew to the rescue and hauled you all three out before much harm was done, and your mother, who had seen it all from the upstairs window, came down and picked you up, dripping as you were, and gave you a beautiful spanking. Ah, said Susan with a sigh, those were happy old days at Ingleside. Must have been, 
said Ken. His voice sounded queer and stiff. Rilla was supposed he was hopelessly enraged. The truth was he dared not trust his voice lest it betray his frantic desire to laugh. "'Rilla here now,' said Susan, looking affectionately at that unhappy damsel, never was much spanked. She was a real well-behaved child for the most part. But her father did spank her once. She got two bottles of pills out of his office, and dared Alice Clow to see which of them could swallow all the pills first. And if her father had not happened in the nick of time, those two children would have been corpses by night. As it was, they were both sick enough shortly after. But the doctor spanked Rilla then and there, and he made such a thorough job of it that she never meddled with anything in his office afterwards. We hear a great deal nowadays of something that is called moral persuasion, but in my opinion a good spanking and no nagging afterwards is a much better thing. Rilla wondered viciously whether Susan meant to relate all the family spankings. But Susan had finished with the subject and branched off to another cheerful one. I remember little Todd McAllister over harbour killed himself that very way, eating up a whole box of fruitatives because he thought they were candy. It was a very sad affair. He was, said Susan earnestly, the very cutest little corpse I ever laid my eyes on. It was very careless of his mother to leave the fruitatives where he could get them. But she was well known to be a heedless creature. One day she found a nest of five eggs as she was going across the fields to church with a brand-new silk dress on. So she put them in the pocket of her petticoat, and when she got to church she forgot all about them and sat down on them, and her dress was ruined, not to speak of the petticoat. Let me see. Would not Todd be some relation of yours? Your great-grandmother West was a McAllister. Her brother Amos was a Macdonaldite in religion. I am told he used to take the jerks something fearful. But you look more like your great-grandfather West than the McAllisters. He died of a paralytic stroke quite early in life. "'Did you see anybody at the store?' asked Rilla desperately, in the faint hope of directing Susan's conversation into more agreeable channels. "'Nobody except Mary Vance,' said Susan, and she was stepping around as brisk as the Irishman's flea. What terrible similes Susan used! Would Kenneth think she acquired them from the family? "'To hear Mary talk about Miller Douglas, you would think she was the only Glen boy who had enlisted,' Susan went on. "'But of course she always did brag, and she has some good qualities, I am willing to admit.' though I did not think so that time she chased Rilla here through the village with a dried codfish till the poor child fell heels over head into the puddle before Carter Flagg's store. Rilla went cold all over with wrath and shame. Were there any more disgraceful scenes in her past that Susan could rake up? As for Ken, he could have howled over Susan's speeches, but he would not so insult the duenna of his lady, so he sat with a preternaturally solemn face which seemed to poor Rilla a haughty and offended one. "'I paid eleven cents for a bottle of ink tonight,' complained Susan. Ink is twice as high as it was last year. Perhaps it is because Woodrow Wilson has been writing so many notes. It must cost him considerable. My cousin Sophia says Woodrow Wilson is not the man she expected him to be. But then, no man ever was. Being an old maid, I do not know much about men, and have never pretended to. But my cousin Sophia is very hard on them, although she married two of them, which you might think was a fair share. Albert Crawford's chimney blew down in that big gale we had last week, and when Sophia heard the bricks clattering on the roof she thought it was a zeppelin raid and went into hysterics. And Mrs. Albert Crawford says that of the two things she would have preferred the Zeppelin raid. Rilla sat limply in her chair like one hypnotized. She knew Susan would stop talking when she was ready to stop, and that no earthly power could make her stop any sooner. As a rule she was very fond of Susan, but just now she hated her with a deadly hatred. It was ten o'clock. Ken would soon have to go. The others would soon be home. And she had not even had a chance to explain to Ken that Fred Arnold filled no blank in her life, nor ever could. Her rainbow castle lay in ruins around her. Kenneth got up at last. He realized that Susan was there to stay as long as he did, and it was a three-mile walk to Martin West's over-harbour. He wondered if Rilla had put Susan up to this, not wanting to be left alone with him, lest he say something Fred Arnold's sweetheart did not want to hear. Rilla got up, too, and walked silently the length of the veranda with him. They stood there for a moment, Ken on the lower step. 
The step was half sunk into the earth, and mint grew thickly about it over its edge. Often crushed by so many passing feet, it gave out its essence freely, and the spicy odor hung round them like a soundless, invisible benediction. Ken looked up at Rilla, whose hair was shining in the moonlight and whose eyes were pools of allurement. All at once he felt sure there was nothing in that gossip about Fred Arnold. Rilla, he said in a sudden intense whisper, you are the sweetest thing. Rilla flushed and looked at Susan. Ken looked too and saw that Susan's back was turned. He put his arm about Rilla and kissed her. It was the first time Rilla had ever been kissed. She thought perhaps she ought to resent it, but she didn't. Instead, she glanced timidly into Kenneth's seeking eyes, and her glance was a kiss. Rilla, my Rilla, said Ken, will you promise me that you won't let anyone else kiss you until I come back? Yes, said Rilla, trembling and thrilling. Susan was turning round. Ken loosened his hold and stepped to the walk. Goodbye, he said casually. Rilla heard herself saying it just as casually. She stood and watched him down the walk, out of the gate, and down the road. When the fir wood hid him from her sight, she suddenly said, Oh! in a choked way and ran down to the gate, sweet, blossomy things catching at her skirts as she ran. Leaning over the gate, she saw Kenneth walking briskly down the road, over the bars of tree shadows and moonlight, his tall, erect figure gray in the white radiance. As he reached the turn, he stopped and looked back and saw her standing amid the tall white lilies by the gate. He waved his hand, she waved hers. He was gone round the turn. Rilla stood there for a little while, gazing across the fields of mist and silver. She had heard her mother say that she loved turns in the roads. They were so provocative and alluring. Rilla thought she hated them. She had seen Jem and Jerry vanish from her round a bend in the road. Then Walter, and now Ken. Brothers and playmate and sweetheart. They were all gone. Never, it might be, to return. Yet still the piper piped and the dance of death went on. When Rilla walked slowly back to the house, Susan was still sitting by the veranda table, and Susan was sniffing suspiciously. "'I have been thinking, Rilla dear, of the old days in the House of Dreams, when Kenneth's mother and father were courting, and Jem was a little baby and you were not born or thought of. It was a very romantic affair, and she and your mother were such chums. To think I should have lived to see her son going to the front, as if she had not had enough trouble in her early life without this coming upon her. But we must take a brace and see it through.' All Rilla's anger against Susan had evaporated. With Ken's kiss still burning on her lips, and the wonderful significance of the promise he had asked thrilling heart and soul, she could not be angry with anyone. She put her slim white hand into Susan's brown work-hardened one, and gave it a squeeze. Susan was a faithful old dear, and would lay down her life for any one of them. "'You are tired, Rilla dear, and had better go to bed,' Susan said, patting her hand. "'I noticed you were too tired to talk tonight. I am glad I came home in time to help you out.' It is very tiresome trying to entertain young men when you are not accustomed to it. Rilla carried Jims upstairs and went to bed, but not before she had sat for a long time at her window reconstructing her rainbow castle with several added domes and turrets. I wonder, she said to herself, if I am or am not engaged to Kenneth Ford. End of chapter 16「You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.